Detroit, the near future. Officer Alex J. Murphy and his partner, Ann Lewis, fight to rid the decaying city of the criminal element which invests it. After being mortally wounded in the line of duty, Officer Murphy is outfitted by OCP with bulletproof titanium robotic parts and with computer-enhanced motor and sensory capabilities. He has become the ultimate super cop. Robocop. I'd buy that for a dollar. Okay. We're rolling now? We're rolling now. After all this all right. trouble and collusion. Oof. Jeez. What a night. What a night. None of the equipment worked. <laughs> you have no idea. Yeah, we had to have, um, all, we had to go find a new, where do you find a new transistor nowadays? <laughs> you know, you Literally at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, you can't find a tube transistor anywhere. And we're on a different mic setup, so we might sound a little different than our usual comfortable, yeah. sexy, so and erotic we the, selves. We had the, you know, MacGyver. Yeah. Whole got your dad's old transistor radio. <laughs> <laughs> Speed powered so, by a tomato, by a potato. Yeah, we have the potato, potato the old potato going, <laughs> the old Lego my potato. So we got to jump right into it today. Well, we're doing a good night, everybody. <laughs> we're doing a Saturday night movie sleepover classic. A, a cla as far as sleepover movies go. This is this is up there. This is probably one of the bigger ones. We're stuck still in '87. <laughs> well, you know what? Our flux, a, flux, a flux hell capacitor. Hell of a year. Yeah, yeah. Hell of a year for sleepover movies. And I, I'm convinced that this is not going to be our last 1987 movie this year either. <laughs> no, I think we got how many more? How many more shows we got this year? Yeah, I'd say at least half of them are probably going to be '87. '87, very fortuitous of us. But um, this We're, movie could be as big for myself. As influential as a Batman was, Tim Burton's Batman, '89. Uh, for those people that are just tuning in for the first time, I'm Jay Blake, and I'm sitting here with Dion Baya. Dion Baya, and this is a little show that we do, a little podcast we do called Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Yes, on and, your AM dial. And uh, today we're doing uh, tonight, I should say, we're doing we're doing 1987's RoboCop. RoboCop from 1987. Now see. So this was a, an extremely influential movie for you. Yeah. On the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. Like, this was never my movie. No. No. Like, I didn't... This is like... I, oh, well, a month I, ago, we did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and you are like... Bleh, 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 bleh. Yeah, I appreciate it now more than I did then. Yeah. I witnessed it, and we can get to your trying to see it in the theater story. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's notorious. The annals, the annals of history. <laughs> Uh, one day, my mom was a single mom, uh, and she had to work, so I would frequently mostly stay at my grandmother's house, but sometimes be dropped off at other people, like my aunt's house yeah. for the day. Yeah. Or uh, this other woman named that we called Kamam Mary, which I think must have been, she was like maybe the godmother to my mom. And her sisters. Like, she wasn't a blood relative, but I would get dropped off at her place some days. She was African American. She's like, what? <laughs> how was the relation here? But, uh, but when I would be dropped off at my aunt's house, and yes, I had an Aunt B. That's sweet. Dropped <laughs> off at my Aunt B's house. Yeah. Aunt B, Uncle Floyd. Yeah. Shout out. <laughs> I love Uncle Floyd. <laughs> uh, and the, they had like a, uh, 
A very small basement, yeah. but like a done-over basement. Perfect. Panels. Perfect, yeah. So. And a, like a bar. Oh, as we talked about, <laughs> uh, what movie did we talk about then? It's one of those. With, you know, with like the cushion. Yeah. Edging all right, we had a, we, we started a podcast with something where you were talking about your friend who, in, who's, uh, you went over the house and he had the jukebox in the basement. Yeah, yeah, Black yeah. Betty, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they, uh, and downstairs they had a VCR. And... And B would take me to the video store to rent stuff, and I rented Superman 4. That's how I saw it. This saw year, that. too. Uh, it's 87. And, well, it must have been like a good 87, 88. Must have been Space like Spaceballs. Must have been a lot of dr- leaving me at Aunt B's house. Yeah. But uh, I had an older cousin, Tony, who was even older than my brother. And cousin Teresa was even older than that, but I guess Tony had rented movies the night before. Everyone's taking notes and filling in the family tree. <laughs> <laughs> and one of those movies that they rented the night before was RoboCop. Okay. And so she's like, there's movies there. Like, put one in. So I watched RoboCop, like, down in that basement by myself. Oh, Jesus. How'd that go for you? I mean, well, was it fine? Yeah, it was fine, but it has never... I, I just, I never appreciated it. Like, I didn't... I watched it, and I don't remember disliking it, but I remember being in college, being in film school, and saying to someone that we went to film school with, um, I was like, you know, the two movies from our youths, from our youths, youths, (laughs) the two youths, (laughs) that everybody fucking loved, and that just never did it for me, and I don't dislike them, but they were never my movie, was RoboCop and Total Recall. Oh, both Verhoeven. He was like, you know, they're both directed by Paul Verhoeven. And I was like, I guess I don't like Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> but on the flip side of that, I'm, I know you love uh, Showgirls. I, I appreciate Showgirls. And I know you love Starship Troopers. I'm not a big fan of Starship Troopers. Basic Instinct? I do enjoy Basic Instinct. And I'm sure there's some of his early his early fare, maybe? I don't know too much of his non-American films, yeah. I'll be honest. I I'm very rarely way. admit. On the show that I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> same for me. And when I was watching all the prep for this, all the actors were like, "Yeah, I saw this, that, and the other." Yeah, yeah. I was like, "I haven't seen any of those." So I, I'm like, uneducated. I like RoboCop just fine, but I did not, never loved it. I think you know, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't get obviously like the whole social satire thing going on, and to this day, I don't love like the media aspect of his movies. Like I don't. Yeah. I understand it's some kind of statement, but I think it actually detracts from the story of yeah. the movie to cut to these commercials and stuff. Uh, and the excessive violence, which was even cut down for the you know the VHS release and the theatrical release back in the 80s. Uh, I, I think it just didn't, I don't know, just didn't connect to me. I mean, obviously, visually, he's awesome looking. Yeah. And uh, conceptually, it's, it's really cool. But I think, in a way, it's like I. Uh, I think maybe I just it was like too dark and like too disturbing, which yeah. is funny because, <clears throat> excuse me, which is funny because a movie that I love is RoboCop Two. Yeah, and that movie's like even more kind of fucked. Up. <laughs> yeah, but I was probably up. a little bit older. It's a good w- sequel too. When I saw it, you know, I know a lot of people pan three. Yeah, and three I think has some redeeming values, but two. It's a good. It's like a lethal weapon to a Godfather too. Yeah, it's a yeah. very. It holds up I as a really, good sequel. I kind of really like too, but I could have. But it also well has could, its detra- its distract this this uh, this detractors. Oh yeah, yeah. Robocop yeah. too. But I, you know, it's, um, but I was kind of like too. But like I said, I was probably obviously because it came out later. Was a little bit older when I saw Robocop too. 
Yeah. So I think maybe I related to it in a different way. Um, Did you get any of the comic books when they came out at the time? No. I mean, it was like I thought he was cool, but I didn't have any toys. I didn't have any. I didn't get any of the comic books. I didn't like RoboCop enough to seek it out, pursue it. Yeah. Uh, so that's a like full disclosure up front. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm certainly not. You know, I, 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 there's nothing to shit on about the movie. I don't dislike the movie. Yeah. Um, and watching it this time around, like I said, I think I like it and appreciate it more now than I ever did. Yeah. But it was not a movie that I have, uh, you know, like super like fond nostalgic memories for. Like I mean, a Batman. I, yeah. Like I do remember watching it, and I remember thinking it was cool. I remember thinking like. The one thing that sticks out is when they do that tracking shot through the locker room and you see that woman's tits. That, yeah. that stuck out. That my stuck head. out. I remember when, you know, the part where he's walking through the club to go get, um, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and that girl, there's a topless girl in there too, you know. And uh, watching, I've been watching the original Twin Peaks yes. lately. Yeah. Because uh, I hadn't seen that since it aired on television. I never watched it. And now they re- you know, they've come out with a new season on yeah. Showtime, and everybody was talking about it. So I was like, let me go back and watch the old ones because I haven't seen them since you know the original air dates. Yeah. And there's a lot of people from this movie in the Twin Peaks movie, yeah, in the Twin yeah. Peaks show. So that's also kind of interesting. David Lyncher. Yeah. I I I'm very cautiously. Contemplating going back and watching the Twin Peaks movies because I'm not really a David Lynch fan. I love yeah, yeah. Um, Elephant Man. Is yeah, a great movie. Elephant Man's great. I, I have a, f- a certain weird fondness for the um, what's the one with the '80s and they're riding on snakes. Oh, Dune. Dune yeah. The, the people that don't like David Lynch yeah. like Dune, and, and I'm in that boat too. Like I love Dune. I have I'm, an affinity but for. But I'm not a big Lynch, uh, you know, follower. Yeah, Blue Velvet. But then, like after that, he just went off the reservation for me. Like, like yeah. I don't like when he openly admits in his movies that he doesn't even know what's going on, and I'm like, oh, what's the point? But so, Dave. Yeah. So I, I appreciate all the people that are in. Twin Peaks and stuff and all the references and stuff. Yeah, yeah, like Ray Wise, he plays you know, Laura Palmer's dad. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Miguel Ferrer, he's in it. So yeah. there's a lot there's of... There's tons of people. So it's like, oh yeah, look so at all I these I want to go back people. and watch it, but it's like, I don't know. I don't know if it's a waste of my time. And I'm not saying it's a bad show or not. Yeah, no, you know, no. I mean, if, you know, that's that's a tangent we can get on yeah, another time. And we different. can talk we'll off, we'll, we'll, off If we ever mic. do a David Lynch movie, you know. So I may, I'm, I'm considering going back and watching so it. So that's where I stand on RoboCop. So... On the other, you know, back to your end of the spectrum, where this was as big a movie as almost the movie could be. Yeah, I remember the first time we, in the summer of 86, we moved to Hamden from my from New Haven, where I used to live, and we got into the new house, and it's like when we got into the new house, we were trying to figure out where to put the TV in the, in the TV room, so it was on a wall that it didn't stay there long, you know? So I remember sitting there one night, and that's the same wall I watched for the first time the... Twilight Zone the movie on like it was against that wall in which the house. wall was it I know nobody else is going to know but you know when you remember when, when you used to walk into my uh, in the, the TV room in the TV room you know how like the, the big screen TV was to your left mm-hmm. to the right where the Barker Lounge was okay it was yeah, against yeah. that wall so you had the, the window that was you had the couch there I see because the back area when you stepped down that wasn't as far back yet because they put an addition on oh the, yeah yeah that was right that was an extension yeah so back there was I think they were still thinking of it being like a nice like separate area to like you know knit or something like okay. that and then we moved the TV back there at one point it was in that back right corner <laughs> you know and then we had it and then we realized we had a, this is a, like a little uh, quasar cabinet television that's what like yeah, yeah, 18 yeah. inches so we realized we put it on the wall that you know it 
yeah, and then, yeah. then when we had the stuff, you, know, you couldn't see the freaking screen. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's because so it was like it's a 25 feet away. Yeah, of color, you know. So that's the TV that we ended up freshman year. Remember, we drug up the purchase and we put in our common area. Oh, okay, yeah. That yeah, was yeah. my TV. This, that's this the part TV of the conversation. Is <laughs> Nobody is going to get. It's not relevant to hey, anybody me. else other than me who's slept on the couch that that TV was in. Yeah. <laughs> That Quasar, that was the TV I saw this on. So I remember sitting on that wall, and I remember I was watching Firestarter, and it was like probably like ABC Night Movie or something, and you got like George C. Scott acting all crazy with his hair, and he's got like, I think, one bad eye and an eye patch in that yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. And I remember they went to a TV break, <clears throat> and the break, they showed the first trailer for Robocop, and it's like him opening the doors to the yeah, grocery yeah. store, the, the convenience store. And that was the first time I've ever saw a trailer for it. And I was like, this movie looks awesome. You know, and then, you know, the build up to it. And then finally, I think people who listen to the show frequently may know already, the payoff was my father took me to the cinema to see it. Yeah. And we got about halfway through the movie and we got to the part where Miguel Ferrer is doing blow off the bitches uh, breasts yeah. and all that kind of thing. It was starting to get into like, you know, three ways and stuff. And my dad <laughs> leaned over and was like, hey, let's go. You know, this isn't for you. I forgot what he said. And we left. And I, re- I, would, I don't remember, but I would think I was pissed at the time. But I, he might have apologized. But as soon as that bad boy came out on DVD, I saw it. Yeah, uh, yeah. VHS, I mean, I saw it. And th- that was one of the first movies that I put to cassette tape. That year, I went a little crazy. That, like Untouchables, Aliens, and Predator... I put all those the cassette tape, so I had them oh, portable. So listen to them. Yeah, so like RoboCop was the first thing, and RoboCop I know like line for line the theatrical cut. Not that there's really any line differences between the extended version. Yeah. yeah. But that was a movie like that changed my like like flipped the script for me, and it got me into like you know superheroes because I was just getting into comic books. So right when that movie came out, I got the magazine sized adaptation uh-huh. of the movie. And what's interesting in the ma- uh, the magazine adaptation, it's like black and white, is the opening scene is the deleted scene that they didn't put in the script where Clarence Bodiger and his guys kill that one cop that at the beginning of the movie, they're like, oh, I hope he survives, yeah, yeah. Fredrickson maybe, and then they take his name off. The, that's shown in the magazine, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I, it was like, I... I I thought it was so much cooler that like, oh, I, you know, I know what happened to that guy. You yeah, know? yeah. So as soon as I got it, I played the crap out of that. So there was no limitation there. But it was uh, certainly a movie that like, I remember I had a sleepover. So this might be the first time we watched it. We had, I had a sleepover and I had my friends over. I might have had my two friends over at the time sleeping over. One of those times where it's like, you know, you can have two people over. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the scene when they're torturing him. That mm-hmm. right before they're about to shoot his hand off, I excuse myself to go to the bathroom on purpose because I didn't want to see that. Like, it really disturbed me. So, well, you had seen it in the theater. Though. Exactly. So I knew it was coming. Yeah. yeah. I knew the, the hand, ex- you know, blowing the shotgun, you know. So that, so I left that, only for that, and then I came back and I was all right with them shooting him up. But that just, <laughs> just that, didn't that, want to see the hand get the, blown yeah, off. Yeah, the hand getting blown off disturbed me. So I remember that's, that's like a real personal thing for me. But yeah, if this yeah. is, you can almost like psychologically analyze my, like, the problems I had as a kid with violence and like, <laughs> and like you know, my, now my affinity for certain things because of this movie. Well, I just, think that's why, one of the reasons why I don't think I liked it as a kid was it was like a little too... It was like a little bit too much. And it's funny that it was the hand. I even like him getting shot in the head, I remember was a big deal. But the, the guy at the end. Which oh, was, the melting man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I remember that. That's all. And, uh, the guy getting shot by Ed 209 in the boardroom. Like, yeah. I think it was just like, it was like too much for like a nine, ten year old kid sitting in a basement by himself. And it's, it's funny that Verhoeven, the director, says that 
the, the cut he had that was deemed X-rated. Yeah, yeah. It was the point was it the violence to be absurd, but because they had the snip here and there to they had to what go eleven times in front of the yeah, MPAA yeah. board to get an R that it made and I think I agree with him that it does yeah. turn the violence not from the absurd into the shocking. Yeah. So yeah. you're a little more shocked and taken yeah. aback by the level of depravity. I don't know I agree. So basically what Dion's talking about is they had to to get an R rating, they had to keep on resubmitting the film by, by editing it down. Before it was able to be released into the theater. And so uh, Verhoeven's initial thing was the violence was going to be so like uh, exaggerated, yeah, so and much hyper realistic <laughs> that it was going to be almost a joke. Like yeah. it was going to be kind of uh, outlandish, like. yeah, a little bit outlandish. And then you know <laughs> the stupid like ratings board and that kept on wanting him to trim it. So just like he said, it went from being kind of almost like a cartoon, a comic book, yeah, yeah, to being. Kind of really messed up. <laughs> it just, it um, just destroyed the kids for at years. At that age, I don't know. I, it, it, you know, it, it would be interesting to see. Uh, I, you know, if there was some kind of alternate reality where you could have watched it that way as a kid, because obviously, like on an intellectual level, you wouldn't be as a child. You wouldn't think of it that way. Yeah, not at all. So I wonder if it would if it would be equally as traumatizing. Or more so traumatizing, or less traumatizing. Yeah, because I don't think I would get like when you look at the cuts that are put back in of the boardroom and that guy getting killed. Yeah, I don't think back then I would like ah ha, you know, I yeah, laugh yeah. like I would be more like oh my god, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's even more like just yeah, that's what I mean. Like as a tr- for an adult, I think maybe that 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 statement by Verhoeven is tr- might be true. Yeah, and, and, I agree with it, but as a child view, as a, a child viewing the movie, I don't know if it would have been. You know, if it would have made it less intense. Yeah, and, and as an extension of that, I wonder, I would even put as far as saying, I don't even know if audiences like my parents or your parents seeing it would even yeah, get yeah. that either. Yeah, yeah. They may look at it like as grotesque violence as opposed to like I think critics may yeah. or, you know, film people we, in the know would get the satire. And we also have the benefit of watching it with like an A-B comparison now. Yeah. Which we wouldn't have had, you know, <laughs> you know, seeing it cut and seeing it uncut. You know, it's a different perspective than just seeing the uncut, having that be the only thing you see. Yeah. Um, on a qu- slight little, like, rewind side note, the reason why I was curious about the TV was because I have very fond sleepover movie memories of watching movies in that TV room at your house. <laughs> and, so, and I forgot you knew that, yeah, we had the extension put on, and it's just, you know. <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of, like, we did our sort of our Savini Fest in that room. Yeah. Like, where we watched, like, The Burning and, uh, and uh, um, The Prowler. The Prowler. We watched, like, the first widescreen cuts of Tombstone and um, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We watched Texas Chainsaw that was Massacre. Because that was our first introduction to a DVD player, remember? Tenebre. Tenebre, the, uh, Four Flies and Grey Velvet. So um, there's a lot of... A lot, a lot of, of very fun discoveries and revisits in of, that in that in that I in that the, sitting on that couch and, and then TV the sleepovers that too that we would have. Remember you and Brian, the actor from my freshman film, you bonding on Star Wars and, and that like room also had all of your vinyl models. Oh yeah, my models. I forgot at the end. My dad had Ooh, put shelves so up we on had, the top. There was a little RoboCop. Yeah, it was a there, Ro- yeah, yeah. The Terminator and a yeah, the, the Horizon models. <laughs> yeah, that I do that. I still got to take a picture for 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 one of our listeners. Who I, I keep forgetting about that. Yeah, but they I still, still have surrounded all those. us while we watched movies. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and it's funny you think about like just yeah, where all the TV would be positioned in all the years yeah, yeah. there, and then I remember what I watched at what you know. 
It's funny. Um, so that's why I, I was curious to know where the TV. Yeah, was. and that's why my dad was like, "We need to get a bigger TV. We can't watch a you know a, a, you know a panel television." So we got we, yeah, we, yeah. we ended up getting one of those projector TVs for a while, and then you know we went to bigger, and then you know. But uh, back on track, I just wanted to note because it's a very important. Those some of my favorite sleepover movie memories are in that room. Oh, that's nice. Good night, everybody. <laughs> we'll be seeing you soon. <laughs> that's also an ongoing joke. I've realized we do that. Every episode, we say we, we act like we're gonna stop because <laughs> it stops. We just stop dead in our tracks, and we're like, oh. Um, so, RoboCop, RoboCop. It's a. Uh, it's funny when you watch the special features and you read up on it, and you listen to the interviews and the Q and As on YouTube and all that stuff. As a kid, being introduced to it, you don't realize that, like, yeah, RoboCop's kind of a silly title. Yeah. It's <laughs> true. Yeah, because they talk it. a lot about how everybody thought this movie when they were going to make it. The script was going around. Everybody just assumed that the movie was going to be some kind of like B schlock shit because yeah. it was called Robocop. And it very much so. I mean, you get like if they're if they're comparing it at the time to like Blade Runner and other things at the time, you know, you would think, oh yeah, maybe it is a little B something that would, you know, like uh, Chopping Mall or something, yeah, or, yeah. you know, or something. Well, it does have like a, almost like a Corman. Yeah, Roger Corman esque, or even like a trauma. Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of feel for yeah, it. Like so, and I'm sure if you if this was taken out of Verhoeven's hands and put in somebody else's who was not as talented or you know as gifted, this could yeah, be have know. been very much a beam. Or if somebody it wrong, that doesn't have as specific a vision. Yeah, you know, to or kind of shape the material. Like even in the actors in it, if you take one of those components out, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I, and I know a lot of my friends, um, other than you. We've we've actually had talks Wait, about you this. You have friends other than me. <laughs> <laughs> don't leave! Don't leave! Don't leave! I'm sorry. Uh, that I think like Clarence Bodiger in this, Kirkwood Smith, in my personal opinion, is like one of the top ten bad guys of all time. Oh yeah, He's I so mean, so amazing. I love him, and his performance in this movie is a big part of that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you took if you took. Things I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this down for one last second because only like three people are gonna get this. You being one of them. Um, this version <laughs> There's a lot of inside. <laughs> this is the insiders episode. This version. This time I watched this this go around. As soon as I saw Kirk, Kirkwood Smith in the first scene in the van when they're getting away and you know how he's dressed. For some reason, all I can think of in this in that was Joseph Kearns, a.k.a. Mr. Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, how cool would it have been in an alternate reality to have Joseph Kearns play Clarence Boddicker, Mr. Wilson? And like, you know, because, I mean, not how he played Mr. Well, Wilson Dennis. on the show. Yeah, exactly. Well, but he's like... <laughs> but if it's just like, you know, if he was... Because he was a method actor. Oh, so, Martha. Yeah, if, if we got him to be like, you know, hey, can you fly, Bobby? <laughs> oh, come on, Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, look in my face, Dick. <laughs> he was trying to kill me. But, so I just keep, I kept seeing Joseph Kearns, and I don't know why. But well, if anybody even knows who Dennis the Menace is. Well, we're going to have now a lot of things. Because when we brought, when we said, I don't know if anybody knows who uh, Joe, Besser. Joe Besser is, everybody's like, I don't fucking know who Joe well, Besser is. We're, so we're still getting those things. I know who Joe Besser is. And somebody <laughs> made a really funny joke on Twitter not too long ago about like somebody hitting Schwarzenegger and Commando hitting. And he's like, not so. Uh. <laughs> I think that's exactly how Joe Besser I do have to point out because they said that you know Verhoeven wanted to kind of cast Kurtwood Smith as the bad guy because it was a little bit uh, against type at the time. Yeah, but he also plays a bad guy in one of my favorite movies, The Fortress, by Stuart Gordon with Christopher Lambert. He's yes. also kind of the bad guy in that movie, and he's he's also a um, 
he's he's in the Star Trek universe as the uh, counselor. Isn't he counselor Gorkon? And is that is that his name in Star Trek Six? Remember yeah. that's the one they're trying to assassinate. Yeah, I don't know at the camp. I don't remember the name. Camp yeah. Kimmer, and um, he then shows up. I think as himself in in another capacity, you know. I'm sure in the in the lore, either Deep Space Nine or whatever. And of course, I think a lot of younger people are going to know him as the dad on that, that '70s show. Yeah, yeah. But he's a phenomenal actor, and you think about his age. I think he was like just pushing forty when he did this movie because he's born in like 1943. So he wasn't a spring chicken per se. And yeah. he said he was getting he would only go up for like or he would only get like intellectual parts and roles and stuff. So this was almost like a because he tried out for Dick Jones in the movie played by. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, oh, what's to say, uh, Cox? Yeah, um, Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox. To say Brian Cox. Uh, Ronnie <laughs> Cox. <laughs> Completely different movie. <laughs> Although I think Ronnie Cox is about as perfect as you can be. Yeah. In that role in this, and as much as I love Brian Cox, and he's also playing against type for himself too, yeah, because yeah. he was only playing. I know I first saw him. Other than this movie, he's in Deliverance. He yeah, gets, he that's gets, right. He gets I forgot that that, he, that was him in that. Yeah, he's one of the ones that you know dies in Deliverance mm-hmm. as well as uh, he had a lot of like. He was on that circuit you'd see, like with who was the woman who was in um, the original Carrie? I mean, the star, uh, Sissy Spacek. Yeah, you remember how she did like some of those like uh, movies with like say Tommy Lee Jones, where they're like those country, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. like er, uh, southern, yeah, yeah like yeah, panhandle yeah. movies. Like I, I, f- <clears throat> I see like he'd be in a lot of those. Even if you like look him up online, like even on IMDb, I think he's got like an acoustic guitar, yeah, like his a banjo, and his yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like he's playing against type there. So like when you have um, Kirkwood Smith trying out for Dick Jones, and then they instead give him yeah. Clarence well, It's Boddicker. interesting because it makes uh, Boddicker, He brings a quality of sophistication yeah. and, and like educatedness to that character that isn't in the script. Yeah, and I completely agree with him when he, in an interview, he says that that makes it that much more terrifying. Because if you just have, and he's right, if you just have a dumb... Because he goes from being just like a heavy to being like maniacal. Almost like a um, Hans Gruber. Like It's like he brings that level of sophistication, which is off the bat, is very terrifying. Like, you know, you may get that in some of Gary Oldman's best performances as an intellectual villain, you know. So that certainly brings a lot to it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, um... Yeah, I mean, you could see him playing the Dick Jones character, but I think you know he's and he's just so good in this movie. Yeah, right? he you would know? be good as, as as Dick Jones' character, but Ronnie Cox is per- oh, he's perfect. he's amazing. <laughs> and I think I uh, watched some of the interviews Kirkwood Smith had did before we watched the movie, so he had talked about. I guess I, I mean I never saw it before, but he says he's overacting like crazy in the movie. Yeah, yeah. But then when you watch the opening scene when he's yelling at Bobby like you blow it all the money, he's like, that's why I immediately yeah. thought of Joseph we Kearns. We needed that money. Come on. <laughs> that's why. I I immediately thought of like like Joseph Kearns like Martha, you know what? Oh, Jesus, you know what's I forget the dog's name is uh oh freaking oh dumb bah, bah, bah. I was just watching it on the way out to uh it's it's like Roosevelt or some name is the, the dog the, their yeah. dog. Uh, but anyway, that's why I thought of Joseph Kearns where he's like just hitting people like that. Um so but it, I don't think he's overacting at all. I think he's perfect. Like it's just it's so I mean it might be "Quote unquote overacting, but it's like perfect for that part. Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, you know, unbeknownst to us at the time when we were roommates in college and we were both in love with the professional. Yeah, 
And then we would oh, read, yeah. we would read about how like in Europe everybody thought Gary Oldman was awful in that movie, yeah. and how Gary Oldman can't even watch that movie because he feels like he's so crazy over the top. But it's like, can you imagine that part without that level of like intensity? And, yeah, I don't think and I, over the and quote unquote over the topness. I don't. Even I mean, it so works. Well. Yeah. It so works for it. Yeah. So you need that level of, and I like how they they have, you know, I guess. Going in the making of this, and it's it's so I, I I feel like we have so much of like a um, like a duty here with this movie. Like we're not going to be able to please everybody because we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast yeah. who are like die hard, <laughs> you know. Like Robo-Con. this is their favorite movie yeah. of all time, and you know collect collect movie stand standees and all kinds yeah. of memorabilia and props and toys and stuff. And there is a uh, a documentary being made. It is in post production called Robo Doc. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't know what, I think it's one of those crowdfunded things, so I never know like what how far the, along they yeah, are. The status of those are. So we're gonna try to do our best here, but um, well, what was I originally talking about with Robo? Oh, but so I like the idea of. I guess they said what the original script was. They they were gonna go for just being Clarence Boddicker being the heavy, but then they realized. When you have you add Miguel Ferrer in there, and then yeah. you add in Dick Jones, um, uh, Ronnie Cox, that you can have it be a duel. You can have the, then the classic. Almost now, I feel like it's almost like it's a, uh, um, a cliched boardroom heavy sure. cap, evil cap, capitalists. But I think it works so well within this movie. Of you yeah, know, what's well, they going talk and, about, uh, and I mean, what year was Wall Street? That's eighty-seven as well. So I mean. I don't think there were a lot of these there were, in in cinema. There wasn't a lot of this like cutthroat. You wouldn't see it. You know what it, was happening in the eighties with which you got recently with Wolf of Wall Street. That era yeah, yeah. of like, um, like a lot of that wasn't really being portrayed in cinema yet. I mean, yeah. Wall Street was kind of the beginning of that, and they talk about how. But it oh, was isn't, not, isn't that Michael J. Fox movie? Isn't that where he's going crazy and he's a he's like a cokehead? Am I kidding? Ain't there yeah. some sort of movie where he's and he's in that world of I don't know maybe like Bright Lights Big City, but I don't know if that's that one. Maybe I'm not. I'm freaking. Um, but anyway, so yeah. it's like it just it wasn't cliche then. Yeah. Although you know there was probably a lot of uh, uh, it, it was known about and it might have been written about in things. So the idea of taking that idea of like these cutthroat businessmen, boardroom, Wall Street type guys, and then what if they really did kill each other? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, like taking it to excess and RoboCop. But at the time, that really wasn't uh, like a cinematic thing so much yet. They they, they talked about um, you know the exaggeration of the executives in the eighties and and using say Wall Street and I guess in the script Miguel Ferrer's character is categorized by the writer as like a yuppie with teeth. And where I work, I work in cable news and I work for a big corporation so I sometimes encounter suits coming in and out executives yeah. and I have to say that I see this all the time you yeah. see the dichotomy it doesn't matter it's it, nonpartisan or it's not political or whatever but if you work for a corporation no matter what you do it's hilarious to see the dichotomy or level of you know you have the big exec and sure. you know, he's the like old the man hierarchy. yeah and you know and people like don't take meetings with the old man because he only takes meetings with the, the top whatever or we're gonna have a meeting with him and there's the up uh, up and coming executive who will do anything who's a yes man but at the same time he will you know f- get anybody else fired or blame anybody else for his prop you know so it is very uh, yeah. it is a great snapshot of that world and it's like I'm saying I still see it today that sure. that level that you know that dichotomy so it's 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 very well, I mean, believable I think in any big business there is that even you know 
working in a different aspect of the television industry. You know, as an editor, we submit cuts to, you know, a rough cut to somebody at the network. Now, that person at the network, it, the, the big secret that nobody talks about in television, <laughs> and at least... As I'm trying to... I'm, not, I'm too far to put my... scripted quote-unquote, reality television is the amount of time and money that gets wasted is, like... Um, like crazy, yeah. Because we spent all this time sending a rough cut to somebody at the network for notes, but at the end of those, the, that person's opinion doesn't matter. But it's like they want to get it to a point where then they can show it to their boss, and that's the person whose uh, opinion matters. And sometimes, unfortunately, you know, they're the person the the person you're sending it to, like the person lower the on man. the yeah, like the lower on the totem pole there. They think they know what, the, what their boss wants, but often they don't. So it's like you make you address all these notes, and then it goes to the real person that matters, like the head of the network or whatever. And then you have to have to put things back because the fucking person in the middle doesn't know. Like yeah. if, if I feel, I always say like if the heads of these networks knew how much money was being wasted by them not just watching the cut and having this other person, I mean. I make real. I make a pretty damn good living. Yeah, and I, like, I'm not going to complain if you want to pay me a week's, you know, fifty hours just to put <laughs> worth it back or time, take out. just to put it back the way I originally sent it. That's fine by me. But that's like that's a lot of money being wasted. Yeah, and I'm only one dude. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So uh, there's all there's a lot of this weird hierarchy that happens in business, and this is just kind of like one really cutthroat. Crazy, yeah, and like you said, it. you see it a lot. We were both work in television, but you see it so much in the film industry nowadays. Where For you sure. don't, you know, nowadays that you can't even get, you know, quality movies made because all they're interested in are, you know, tentpole movies, movies that already have, um, you know, audiences that already will know the product. So it's like, you know, it, it, you start seeing, yeah. you know, what they what executives' idea what will be pop popular won't come to fruition or you know what is something say like a Transformers which you would think would be a, a no brainer won't get the eyes it should be for yeah. whatever reason so you see a lot of that in, in, in corporate business even today which is sure. you know which I guess is um, I mean we should also note that the you know the quote unquote old man yeah, we have. Well, we have a couple people have made has has made an appearance on this show before. We have a couple people in this in this um, who have made appearances on this show before. Dan O'Herlihy, yeah, who plays the big chief over at OCP, the old man. He, of course, is Colonel Cochran in Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. <laughs> yeah, we have him. <laughs> Which it's amazing to think that that's only four or five years before. Well, I wonder if they if that was the reason behind the casting. Like, you know, they saw him in Season of the Witch. But doesn't, and then, doesn't you know, Halloween 3 seem like such an older movie? It does. And, and he, even, he even seems like he's... We, we, we talked about in some other podcasts recently where, like, people look like they go over the hill very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And he seems like, to me, he's aged a decade from Season of the Witch, which is five years before, yeah, yeah. to, you know, this movie coming out. Because he, to me, does seem like so an old man. I think of Season of the Witch, I think it's something like a movie from so fucking long ago, you know, like... I think of like Halloween, you know, it's it's part of that. And then, but when you think of RoboCop, it's like, oh yeah, RoboCop just came out. But that even that was thirty years, 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's so freaking weird. Um, yeah, and you know, and then it's it's interesting too because at the end of this movie, as a child, I never saw him really as a villain. I mean, in the in the movie, the old man. Yeah. The beginning, yeah, he's a, he's a he's an he's an ass or whatever. But you don't really get a good semblance of what his motivations are because he's being kind of 
waited upon by Dick Jones and uh, Miguel Ferrer's character. So at the end of the movie, when he does the right thing and like you know, thank it, it, to me, it was almost like, oh, he's a good guy, yeah. which is interesting because then when you go see Robocop two, they really turn the tables or they reinforce it. No, he, the old man is the bad guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's different from the comic because in the comic they kind of played him being more of a lovable. I mean, the comic has its whole different world and, and uh, longevity that it that it developed and went on to do. Frank Miller had a huge part in the comics at one point. They had Robocop versus uh, Predator, which was huge, versus yeah. Aliens. Well, Frank Miller ended up know. writing the sequel. But the to, movie. Yeah. Um, the guys that originally, that wrote the first script, Edward Newmeyer? New, yeah, Newmeyer. And Michael Miner had written a, a version of, a, like, a second, a sequel script. Uh, but then apparently the Screenwriters Guild had a strike. As they always do. And since they were members of the Screenwriters Guild, they couldn't work on the script or rewrite a new script. So they went to a comic book writer yeah. who wasn't part of the, writer, the Screenwriters Guild. And so uh, Frank Miller ended up writing Robocop 2. And Robocop 2 is also directed by Irvin Kirshner? Yeah. Who uh, directed Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. So my thing is always... He was somebody. I mean, I don't. I, I is don't, he Tombstone? I, too? I don't think he. No, that was. Uh, what? A, that's Cosmato. George P. Cosmato. Okay. Because I thought he had some. Doesn't Kirshner have something else? But I was said uh, because of those two. I was like, I, I, I doubt uh, Kirshner's still alive. Oh no, I think he passed. Yeah. Um, but I was said uh, back in the day when he was still. I was like, you want somebody to direct an awesome sequel? Or get him. <laughs> get her Kirshner. Yeah. yeah. I think he might have directed The Eyes of Laura Mars. Yeah, that's was, another great which movie. Which I think was written by John Carpenter. And that's, uh, is that written by John Carpenter? I think it was. Yeah. Wow, that's a really good movie. I could be wrong. That's, Somebody's going to be like, no, it's not. You, you idiots. Uh, that's an underrated movie if anyone hasn't seen it. But um, it, it's certainly, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and then that was like the backlash of why I think uh, Return of the Jedi went to a certain way because Empire Strikes Back was so dark. Yeah. What's his face was pissed because he was doing other things. He's like, I didn't see George. <laughs> I know, but now you know, it's like they, now we got Ewoks and all that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the two of them, um, Newmeyer and Miner, they they I guess uh, one of them would had was low level. He had a low level job in working in movies, and he yeah, uh, Newmeyer I think did. And he was getting he didn't read studio. comic books, and he was being he was having read all stuff Stan Lee was writing. So he was reading like Spider Man, Iron Man. They're looking for stuff to like. To like try to open up and um, what do you call it? Develop. Yeah. Well, this is probably around the time that like Canon was thinking about making Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, and then and we know the Masters of Universe was eighty-seven. Yeah, and this is Orion, and and so Blade Runner is in production, and uh, he sees what Bla- what they're doing with Blade Runner. I think he walks is, on sets, which is which 80, is eighty-two. 81. Yeah. I mean, it came out eighty-two, so yeah, it's probably eighty-one. So that's the other thing is what what other movie did we just do? Well, I know Batman was definitely a movie like that where they worked on Batman for like twelve years before yeah. it came out. In theaters. Oh, uh, so it's hard to put in perspective that like they're this guy's thinking about making RoboCop in nineteen eighty-two, and then it comes out. And, yeah, I mean, five just years later. it's just five years later, but still, we've talked about ones that have been yeah development for ten or fifteen years. Uh, so. He, He's getting ideas from Blade Runner. He comes with an idea for a script, which I guess is what that he's going to have a police officer. Yeah. Who well, somebody was like they were working on Blade Runner. He saw a poster or something, and he said to somebody or his friend, or something, "What's this movie about?" And they're like, "It's about a guy that hunts a cop that hunts robots." Yeah. 
So then he had like this epiphany about like, what about a movie with a robot cop? (laughs) Hunting criminals. Yeah. And then he shopped that around and nobody would really care for it. And then he hooks up with, um, what's his face? Uh, Minor. Michael Minor, who I think might have a background in maybe music videos or something. Yeah. And he has an idea. Minor, yeah, he's a music video director. And he had uh, a rough draft of a script called Super Cop. And his story was about a cop who's seriously injured and becomes a donor uh, it, it donates its parts to an experimental police officer so they get the idea hey let's just combine yeah. script ideas and I know we're glossing over the real backstory of this the logistics of it but they bring them together and they kind of come up with this draft of Robocop and they name it Robocop and I don't know I'm sure there's a story behind the naming of it which we may not know and uh, from there I guess well, they, they said like even when they were trying to sell it they're like we like it but we have to change the title everybody was like we like the, we like the script but we have to change the title that, <laughs> that was the feedback they're getting from, from the companies that, because that, like we said earlier in the podcast like it is kind of a it's a serious it's a, it's a it's crazy very title. on the nose and it's very funny that they, it was ultimately allowed to keep that title yeah, you would yeah. think that they but would but ultimately it was like you know, a title that tells you exactly the movie, like Teen Wolf. Yeah. Like you, <laughs> you know exactly what you're getting there. You read that title, you know exactly what Batman. the movie's going to be, you know? Yeah. And so uh, they would start developing Karate movie. Kid. Karate Kid, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Terminator. Karate Kid's a very silly title. Yeah. But you see that it's about a kid who knows karate. Okay, I'm on board. I got it. I'm ready to go. Uh, and so with the success of Terminator coming out with Orion, and that does really good. That really helps them develop this movie because I guess they were looking for some sort of robotic sequel because you have Blade Runner that does really well. Yeah. You have Terminator that does really well. And they're both kind of, I mean, I think when we said in the Terminator podcast we did that Terminator seems to be a little more grounded in horror. Yeah, yeah. To a certain extent. And Blade Runner, which we haven't got to yet, but that's a movie that's certainly sci-fi. and People say set the bar for, you know, sci-fi, future noir in the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know. I mean, it, you can't get kind of more visually stunning of a movie than Blade Runner yeah. in a lot of ways. You know, so and then that's the... that's. They, I mean, interesting that all these movies are directed by real, like, auteurs, like real master craftsmen. Yeah. You know, you got Ridley Scott, Jim Cameron, and Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. And it takes... That's the thing about sci, you know, sci-fi horror. Even today, even though there's a bigger following and the, those followings are united in a way that they've never been united before because of the internet. Sure, sci-fi was always big. You had sci-fi conventions and Star Trek and and uh, and all that stuff. But because of the internet, it's just like we all are. There's a way for all us kind of movie geeks to kind of congregate virtually and talk about movies so but even though that exists and uh, I was just talking about this with somebody um, so it's hard to lose sight of because you know being on Twitter being part of like a film community on Twitter especially because of my book like one that's very genre based and because of the podcast um, it's hard to lose sight of that like even though it seems like there's so many people Outside, you step one out, step outside that very small like microcosm to the rest of the world. Sci-fi and horror is kind of shit on. I yeah. Mean, even in the movie industry, I talk about it in my book. Like horror movies have, you know, Christopher Young who scored Hellraiser and Drag Me to Hell and even Spider-Man Three, and um, he said like, you know, horror's the bastard stepchild of like Hollywood. It's it saved um, studios from tanking. It makes money. It's made. It's been like the training ground for everyone from Coppola 
<laughs> yeah, everybody's you know, to every you know with the exclusion of like Scorsese, every director we like now, Spielberg, got like, their star. But then know. Scorsese went on to make like, oh yeah yeah you know Cape Fear yeah Thriller, dipping and dabbling um, in horror, horror, but yet that doesn't get a lot of respect. Yeah. and sci-fi is that way too. So uh, it takes and you know what? It could be the elements of sci. Um, uh, I would say not so much with horror, but certainly sci-fi. You you because it or even more a, play, a pure fantasy movie, you need a level of production value sure. to be able to Pull maybe off yeah and, so, and, and be able to like suspend that yeah and the believability level yeah. yeah because a horror movie with a very low budget and the right idea you can do something you know breathtaking a masterpiece where with unless you you know commit yourself to animation or something that's completely you know. Uh, will embrace that idea. Sci-fi is really hard to pull off, yeah. believably, because people will knock. Oh, it's a man in a cardboard suit, dre- sure. you know, painted silver. You know, that's a robot. You know, yeah, yeah. so it's really hard. You know, you see that in the fifties and sixties with, like, a show like The Outer Limits that um, you know people used to say was too long because it was an hour-long show and it was like a monster of the week. But like, if you don't have a budget, yeah. all you're going to have is a dude in a, in a rubber costume, yeah. like, you know. So it's it's hard to, you know, for people to then. You know, us cinemaphiles, I think, can jump over that very quickly and get past the um, you, hokiness. Yeah, yeah. But the mainstream, the same people who are probably criticizing sci-fi but are the people, you, you know. Exactly. But the way that it kind of surpasses that genre fandom and go, gets mainstream, if you look at most of the science fiction movies from especially the 70s and 80s, the ones that really stand out are... Uh, Mad Max, yeah. Escape from New York, 2001. Terminator, well, yeah, going back even yeah, further. Yeah. With they're all made by directors with very specific visions. Yeah. And I think that's like, and I'm, you know, like we established, like I'm no like huge Verhoeven follower. Yeah. I have nothing against Verhoeven. But I can, uh, I can uh, recognize that he is uh, a director with a vision. Yeah. Oh, and they, it's interesting that the idea is brought up that. You take, say, Ridley Scott and Blade Runner, and that's an a very alien, an alien. It's a very visual movie. Yeah. Where this movie, RoboCop, is a very visual movie, but they also call it a very visceral movie. The idea, you know, a lot of the yeah. the themes behind it and the plots that you you and I, as seven well, or eight year olds, don't get. I mean, that's why a lot of the Italian horror and a lot of the Argento stuff like that appeals to me because it's. It's it's beyond plot. It's beyond yeah. drama. It's there's something very visceral about it, and a lot of people can't can't get past that. Yeah. You know that that's I think an issue and with think, a lot of critics. And I think that's why watching it nowadays, like I appreciate it more on that level than I didn't appreciate it yeah. as a kid. You know, like the excess of that violence is is it's it is it's very visceral and like you yeah. know and like the effects and and it's funny and the suit and stuff i mean it's all it's all like it's like it like assaults your senses in yeah a way. i mean we have that boardroom scene so you mean the you know i mean the basic story is and it's very funny i don't want to bring it around too much to today i don't think but it is funny how detroit has become what they kind of forecast mm-hmm. in the movie but i guess they picked detroit because for america it's it's for the certain extent in the middle of the 20th century, that was the Motor City was the lead city of the of industry in, in, yeah. in the United States. You know, you had all of our cars basically coming out of there, Ford, Chrysler, and all them, and GM. And uh, so, in the f- near future of RoboCop, that city's on the brink of bankruptcy, and 
there's a you know there's a big disparity between the have and have nots of the poor and the wealthy, and then there is this other. And we've talked about urban renewal like a month ago, and um, um, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but there's an idea that they're going to be remaking old Detroit into this new Delta City, and that's the idea these big executives want to do. So you have these cops who don't have any support, very much like today. You, you know, there's a lot of we yeah. always talk about how all these, you know, it could be 40 years old, but you see a lot of these themes again. And uh, you know, you you have I guess the the blue collar police officer between a rock and a hard place where they yeah. you know they don't have any support at the street level with helping against the crime, and they don't have any support from their brass. They're getting yeah. killed also, five a week. They want to strike. You know. Yeah, I also feel like it's a little bit of a comment, and at least I took it this way of like the danger of like privatizing yeah. police, the police instead of having it be like a city thing, like OCP. Like a company, it's corporate. Yeah, they're, they're part taking of a, a corporate, corporate interest structure, which you know it leaves it leaves something like that up to corruption in a way that yeah, you you wouldn't you necessarily wouldn't, get. I mean, you there's know, always corruption there, everywhere. There's always you know, especially in the movies. Yeah, <laughs> so it's corruption, but it leaves it it leaves it open to like a different kind of corruption. Yeah, we get we get our star um, Alex Murphy, aka. Um, Peter Weller, he comes in, he's transferred from like uh, Metro South to this precinct, mm -hmm. and he's got to very quickly get the gist of what's going on. And then we have that first scene, this boardroom scene that we're talking about here, where they introduce this new robot to combat um, policing Ed 209, and we just learned that OCP has taken over because the police have been doing so bad. They've semi-privatized the police industry, and OCP has taken over. Yeah. And uh, in that scene, we have a gentleman named... Um, if I can find his name, Felton Perry. He plays Donald Johnson, who's one of the who's the African American with Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, I didn't realize until this viewing um, that he is uh, he was in the Towering Inferno. He's the African American who's Steve McQueen's fireman buddy. Oh, okay, yeah, and yeah. he's also the uh, cop that gets paired off with Eastwood and Magnum Force. He's the African American, oh, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. partner. So he's another who's been on the podcast before. So <laughs> nice to have you back on. Thanks for coming. Thanks yeah. for coming back on Thanks the show. For, yeah. Uh, so um, you know, they have this idea of this uh, Ed two hundred nine, and then like we said, it goes horribly wrong, and Ed two hundred nine ends up killing somebody. Yeah. And there's this big uh, thing, I guess, in the community that uh, it wasn't a mistake that they had live ammo in Ed two hundred nine. It's just the arrogance that they didn't think that anything, or they didn't think past like, oh, you know, safety or whatever. So yeah. When Ed 209 horribly murders somebody in front of everybody, <laughs> it's, it, you know, the, the first thing is, like, somebody call a paramedic when he's clearly dead, and yeah, then there's yeah. no, uh, Dick Jones is, um... It's a, it's a glitch. I think that's yeah. also stuff that, to me, as an adult watching You get it, it now. It's, you know, you get the, like, the absurdity and the kind of commentary yeah, of it. Yeah, that he's not... But as a kid, it was just like, I, I don't know, I think that's a lot, like I said. Yeah, like, it's, I, it's very... I, I think it goes over a lot of... It goes, yeah, times, it goes over your... Uh, certainly, it goes over the simplistic, the child's head. But yeah, I certainly see that now where none of them care about this guy who just got killed. Certainly Miguel Ferrer, at the end of the scene when he goes into the elevator, he's like, well, you know, that, that, that's what happens. Or if he says a throw-off yeah. line about, you know. And uh, so when the, Dick Jones is trying to plead his case, Miguel Ferrer comes in. And I, I didn't know until this recording, I didn't hear that, that he says that, that they, um, they've been strategically redistributing um, the police officers and putting uh, rookies in, in crime-ridden areas to, ha to get prime candidates to the new RoboCop program. So I wonder if that is, is the reasoning behind why young, um, not, he's not a rookie, but the young cop Alex Murphy is transferred to this yeah, crime-ridden yeah. South because they are actually putting 
not cops that are unqualified, but cops that may, you know, there's a very high likelihood that they're going to get shot in the line of duty, yeah. you know, in a situation that they'll have a prime candidate for his program, RoboCop, which they say they can get up and running in 90 days. So I found that very, like, um, you know, almost, you know, disturbing, like, wow, see, the, they're doing all this yeah, backroom dealing. there's like dealing. a method to it. Yeah. And um, you, you talked about the, the, uh, the, the commercials in, the, in it, and I've always had an issue, especially with, I haven't seen Total Recall like in almost a decade, um, his version. And I remember being bored a little bit with the, to- with the commercials in, Ro- um, in Total Recall. And I used to get bored with them with RoboCop, but I kind of like them now because I guess it does lend to the absurdity that you see. And I guess it's because it's very cliched now. But like yeah. right when you see the opening we introduced with a, with a newsreel, you can say, that sets up what's going on at the time. And you have, like, within it, they're talking about, like, a neutron bomb going off. And in the early 80s, people were very worried about this this development of this so-called neutron bomb, which was, a, like, a, a low-yield bomb that would... The radiation would kill everybody, but it wouldn't physically destroy as much. Mm-hmm. So the issue was they thought they would use these in city centers where you could take over. You'd kill everybody, but the structural will still be there. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So they were worried about that. The Star Wars program, which we've brought up before, that was like a Reagan thing that has nothing to do with the Star Wars movies, that the, like the lasers against... Yeah, yeah. You know, which we see later in the yeah, movie. So <laughs> they're talking about... Yeah, see that, that it's full going and like, you know... So they're up, Santa Barbara. Like, yeah, they destroy Santa... They t- that's it. It's, and it's just, oh, well, you know, two of our you know presidents who have... Who've retired there they're dead so a country's mourning anyway and they're smiling so it's all like the it's kind of like today where like we have these mass shootings and we're almost so desensitized to stuff like 9-11 or these things that because it's not directly affecting us it seems even if it's in our country it's so far away you know and and I find that it's a, it's a good foreshadow of that. And then when they get to the, the first commercial you see, it's for heart replacements. Yeah, and the yeah. guy's saying, like, you know, it's even, it, it, you know, and it's, it's funny. There's all, like, you know, car names for the hearts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he says you can even get a tax credit for it. So it's like, see, it's, like, all very yeah, much like you today. You choose your own heart. What yeah. model you want? Yeah, you, you know, want? so it's, you know, and then, you know, the next scene when we get to the police station, you like we said, we see co-ed bathrooms. That's very modern with the gender neutral people trying to, like, you yeah. know, co-ed, you know, with... with well, I went to a movie theater. Locker rooms and stuff. I went to the Anthology Film Archive in, uh, down in the village here in New York City to see something. Um, and I noticed that walking up to the bathroom, it was unisex. Yeah. So I was like, okay, it's like a toilet. You know, like a small room. I'm yeah. Single. No, it was a full bathroom. I knew it was like a full public bathroom with like six stalls. And, and urinals? Yeah. And it was said unisex. <laughs> so you can just be in there doing what you want and then... <laughs> and I was like, that's... I don't know. It's It seems odd. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if... Particularly, I don't know if I would give a shit to take a piss in a room, but I would imagine a lot of women would be uncomfortable with that. Yeah, that's the argument presented. And people also say, like, you know, uh, the I mean, argument maybe is they also... Have- other bathrooms in the facility that I didn't go to, you know? The, ar- the other argument is made that, like, you know, like if you have your kid and your kid, like, okay, go to the bathroom, Johnny, and Johnny goes into the bathroom and then there's some, you know, or, or girl. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's going by herself, seven-year-old, and you have some dude in there with her, yeah, you know, yeah, who's a sicko. So that's anyway, why I, a lot so of the advocate. Was people, that was recent, so yeah. you just brought up the idea. So, but you see, like, these are all, and, I, and that's, so I kind of, like, gleaned a little more of an appreciation for, like, the, the breaks. I mean... I know it does abruptly stop the. Uh, yeah. The, the I mean, plot. some of them certainly do, you know, are relevant. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of them, like I, you know, the recurring, you know, I buy that for a dollar thing. Yeah. 
you know. I see. I find that 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 guy's hilarious. But he, you know, he's like a spoof on Benny Hill. But it's like the, where the society's gone to, where they're all everybody's watching this guy, and he's like doing sex jokes. And like at one point, he's like, "Can I have both, both girls?" And, you yeah, know, so you well, don't know where it's, it's, it's going. It's also kind of funny because watching Twin Peaks, the first season of Twin Peaks, there's this like really awful uh, soap opera that everybody in the town is watching. And so it also just kind of reminded me of that. There was a lot of weird parallels with Robocop and Twin Peaks because I've been I'm in the midst of watching it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you I, know, it's just like there's a lot of... Because even Dan O'Hurley he plays the old man. He's in Twin Peaks. He's in so Twin Peaks too. Yeah, in season two. Uh, so there's just like a lot of overlap and it's just it very strange because it's also... It's a little bit after Robocop, but it's also very uh, much... Very close in time when yeah. it was made, so it also has a very similar like that feel or nineties way it looks and yeah. stuff is, is very similar. So it was just like, man, I'm like I feel like this is some kind of like weird extension to Twin Peaks. It could be like a, like, and, and then that's it's like a world, you know, what kind of a world that inhabits like in the RoboCop world. Like I can I I used to always see like that's almost like in the same realm as Escape from New York, or you know, like sure, that could yeah. be happening in Detroit, where New York is so destitute. After the Warriors, that now they've turned it into a prison colony. You know, um, the, there was supposed to be, I guess, a commercial break at the end of the movie. One last one that they ended up cutting because they wanted like the abrupt. You know, it's more poignant to go out on like, "What's your name, Murphy?" and then it ends there. Yeah. But in that, you were going to learn who the um, the Brixby Steiner is supposed to be. That guy's name. You never learn that guy's name or the the show. I'll buy that for a dollar. Okay. They were gonna. They were. There was gonna be a punchline there as well as like you know they were gonna give you like a little thing like. Um, you know, uh, what's her face? Nancy Allen's character, Lewis. She's recovering, and uh, believe it or not, there are no wedding bells. You know, in the near future, between her and uh, you know the RoboCop, like you know, <laughs> they're already like alluding to some sort of relationship. Um, but so, the next scene you get is like you know you get the crime, you get introduced to Clarence Boddicker. We already know that Clarence Boddicker gang is running around marauding. He's he's the you know the the, the mobster of old Detroit. They get into a gunfight with him. It leads him to the. Um, to their hideout. I loved in the movie too that like like we were just talking about in the um, slap shot that in the 70s you had this the whole rust belt yeah. 70s and 80s all that industry was dying and it's poignant in RoboCop that you have they shot the entire movie the opening scene is I guess the opening shot is Detroit they didn't shoot like a lick of film in Detroit they shot it all in Dallas, Texas yeah. to make it look new and then the scenes of at the steel mills and the hideouts were shot in Pittsburgh uh, I guess places that were already closed down. So it's funny to think that like uh, the Rust Belt, the fear in the 70s and 80s, certainly one of the themes in Slapshot is this industry's dying. We don't know what to do, what the hell we're going to do when this whole town dies. Yeah. And then now you have these, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if the extension, is that supposed to mean that all the people who are out of work are becoming criminals because that's the only thing they have left? You know, like they become so maddened, but now yeah. that their hideouts are these old steel yeah. mills and I all these things. I also find it weird that like, it's the hideout for the bad guys in the beginning of the movie and then it's a hideout for the good guys at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, they don't know where to go. You know, <laughs> like the same exact location. Yeah, and it's and I, I found those establishing shots when they would establish the steel mill, very Batman. Like, yeah. Right, as you, were, right oh. as you were about to say it, I was like, you're going to say it's very Batman. It's very Batman, like with the Danny Elfman music. And the score in this movie too, um, I like the guy who did it. He was saying that... Um, you know, the, the, he wanted to play on like the man versus machine kind of a thing, yeah. so he used synthetics versus uh, strings and stuff. What's his name? Uh, Basil? Yeah. Uh, 
This is a, it's a tough <laughs> last name. That's going on the list of people we we, we massacred. Be, yeah, we Palad- Paladoris. Yeah, uh, and he's almost. I'd say he's almost sleepover know, legend. He's almost sleepover Hall of Fame. I mean, he did like Blue Lagoon and Big Wednesday, but he did Conan, yeah. The Barbarian, Red sweet, Dawn, sweet. Iron Eagle, uh, The Intruder, which is a horror movie that's uh, by Scott Spiegel, but all like part of the Raimi group. Uh, Quigley Down Under. Oh, I love that one. Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. Yeah. And Breakdown with, with Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. It's a very underrated Russell. But he, for him, he talks about, which I think it really works, that he wanted to have the synth. Yeah. And then with the strings. And I found, like, the scene when Robocop. Yeah, so what you're saying is that the synth is, like, uh, you know, represents the robo. The future. Yeah. The, the, future, the, the robot part of Murphy. The man versus machine. And then yeah. the orchestra is something that's. Like organic, the, more organic, and so that's the Murphy part. So it's it's a the score is kind of a hybrid of the two. Just, yeah, just the way RoboCop is. Yeah, and there's like the the scenes, particularly when he goes to visit his old house as RoboCop. Yeah, uh, the scoring there it's so lush. It reminds me right of like again a John Barry. It's very like you yeah. know it sounds like with the with the horns and the strings. It sounds very out of like we did Black Hole, we did Raise the Titanic, like that kind of an era of John Barry with all like. It almost I, I never realized that before, and that's such a sad scene. But, but I think the score is like that's something that's always stuck with me. The theme for RoboCop, you know, when this became when this idea of reissuing all these scores on vinyl, this was one that got reissued a couple years ago. So like really early on, somebody was like, "We got to reissue the RoboCop score." You know, it's clearly beloved. You know, there's so there's so many great scores from that time period. Yeah, you know, the Terminator score. Is great. Predator is a great score, yeah. and they're all very similar in a way in terms of tone and feel. Yeah, um, but they're ones that definitely like stand out for me anyway. I think they probably do for a lot of people from our generation. Yeah, and I think they do a good job. But just, just it just it brings the movie together, and then so we we get to the steel mill, and then he uh, he's killed, and it's and it's. For me, watching it this time, it was almost like horrifying. I've always had an issue with the level of violence in that scene, but I guess today, when you have like this whole tension between police and criminal, and like criminals getting killed, police officers getting killed, innocent people sometimes getting killed, um, that whole scene where he becomes like a martyr and like a Christ-like figure, and they like the brutality in it, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. very disturbing to a yeah. certain level of you know how they take their time in executing him and stuff like that, and. Uh, you know, Verhoeven says that he says he doesn't make political movies, which is interesting because I think he does. <laughs> you know, but he yeah, says how did you make something like Starship Troopers and, and have, and have, you, have and not be political? That. I don't or know. This, even this movie. Yeah, yeah. But he's saying he instead of saying it's a Christ allegory, that's a big thing. Yeah. Is that he he's saying it's you know it's a whole and you know you certainly see that he's he was calling RoboCop the American Jesus, which is almost like a that could be like a uh, a song. Yeah. You know yeah. and. Uh, you certainly see that with like him being crucified so much, where like you know they. Yeah. He, I mean, he needed to be he needed to have be executed to be able to have a resurrection. Yeah, exactly. And he's talking about you know when they blow the hand off, it's like putting the spike in the hand, or when they put shoot him in the head, it's the crown of thorns. Then when he comes back, you know, and then he's walking on water near the end when he's walking towards him, and you know, and then the scene where he Verhoeven even says where he he says the Clarence Boddicker, I'm not arresting you anymore. There's segments in the Bible where Jesus says that like you know if um, go turn in your robes and pick up swords, so it's yeah, like yeah. he's almost advocating to. For a certain level of and defense I mean, or protection, and if you take you know you want to look at the old Detroit as being kind of uh, symbolically, you know, the way the world is. I mean, he's definitely a savior. Yeah, he's, he's saving them. But it also, you know, you have a lot of the political 
aspects of it being like, you know, it's, it's, it's capitalistic, the evils of capitalism and the, the, the people. But then I don't know what it's saying about the, 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 the population. You don't really see the regular people of yeah. Detroit. I mean, well, that's like the one kind of, I think, almost bad thing about the movie is that you see him in like Robocop 2 and 3 it's being talked things are being talked about it's like I wish things were less talked about in the news and shown and more shown like have him go like show how bad the neighborhoods are you know know. and I guess that's their attempt to do that when they're everyone's robbing and looting but for me it almost was because there's an omission of the aside from like Robocop's family yeah anybody you interact with that aren't either OCP or police like the, the commoner are just like real heels you know, so I don't know if that's saying then because of the lack of jobs and the, 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 that all the the city is kind of dried up that they've everyone's turning to a life of crime because when, when you see in Robocop 3, he almost becomes a savior for, he becomes, he's fighting with like the freedom fighters. Like the, it's almost like the people have, they've started a revolution and are fighting sure, against yeah. OCP as opposed to like, because at the end of the day, even though he is kind of a savior, he still works for OCP. So he is, in yeah. effect, their instrument of whatever they want. But also, I mean, I think to what you're saying about the reason why it's crime ridden I mean, I th- it, look, there's no, it's no coincidence that like the parts of cities and stuff that are most crime ridden are the ones that are like the least... <laughs> you know, have a population that are unemployed, or you know, like there's they yeah. do they kind of do go hand in hand. Yeah, um, because people are you know you get one people that become criminals because uh, out of survival, and then you get criminals that go there to exploit that aspect of it, or even just go there to you know as some kind of cover. I mean, so yeah, I mean, I think for sure. I, I think it goes without saying that that's like kind of the implication <laughs> is that you know industry and stuff is dying and and crime rises because yeah. of it. And that's the and then that's their even their argument as the reason they need OCP in Delta City because they're going to, you know, uh, pave over it all and yeah. put a new gleaming city up, you and, know, enforced by the thing by that nobody, you know, these kinds of corporate things, especially in movies. I don't know how in real life it's, it's like. I would imagine it's not too different. The thing they don't really ever take into account is like, then what are you going to do with all the people yeah. that are there? <laughs> and we, we touched upon that, I think, in the in the Roger Rabbit podcast, where in real life what they did with Urban Renewal is they would just make projects, co-op cities, or these you know slum high-rises where you have you know how 10,000 people living in one building and they have no means of getting anywhere through transportation. They have no work around them, and it actually makes the drug dealers and the other people easier to, 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 to get access to these people because there's no fences or borders yeah, yeah. between their houses or whatever. And it's and some, I forget the, the scholar's name, an African-American scholar said that went to the, the great ghettoization of America, doing it that way with in the 70s of urban renewal. But he, Murphy, is shot dead. He's almost killed. And then, you know, he's, and I always found that, you know, that scene real jarring when they're trying to bring him back on the, on yeah. the ER table. Yeah, I mean, that's probably what's in, my, in all honesty. Like, I feel like it's, for me as a viewer, the best part of the whole movie. It's very traumatizing. Is having his resurrection happening through his own point of view. Oh, okay. So past his death. Yeah, like and seeing then, him being. It's a great device. Seeing him dying. Yeah. You know, mostly through his point of view. Like seeing the. The, and it's like, really, you know, like, let's call it. We're not going to be yeah, able to save really him. And it's very poignant when they And then he's awakened. Yeah. As as Robocop. Yeah, he doesn't know <laughs> what's we, going but on. But we don't know yet. Yeah. And he doesn't know yet. And it's very poignant to see, like, uh, 
when he's flatlining in the ER and they're 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 defibbing they're defibbing him, you know, and that, yeah. that he's he's seeing these memories of TJ well, Laser. Yeah, he's like having his life flash. Yeah, and it's really because then it works so effectively for me later when he goes back to his house and you recognize these memories he's having. Yeah. Because of the idea of um you know, we've seen them before. They were laid. The exposition was laid out pretty well. It's the only memories he had. Yeah, there's those three. <laughs> that one that? That, that, those two days in his, yeah, and was, <laughs> in his house are the you. most uh, important uh, moments of his life. It was, it was the new house. And then he, yeah, he, and it's a great device where you're right, through the point of view where he wakes up. Yeah. And we but don't know a lot what's of that yet. hospital scene is, most of that hospital scene is through his point of view also. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. cut from, you know, we'll cut to like the, the close ups of his eyes. Close ups of his eyes. Yeah. And you can see the hole in his head, but the, then, like, you know, give him the, the paddles, shock of yeah. his, his chest. But for the most part, you're seeing it, you're seeing his death through his own eyes. Yeah. And then we see his resurrection through his own eyes, too. And even though, like, you could argue that cinematically it's just a static shot. So maybe it's not the most interesting, but at the same time, it is like kind of the most interesting and most cinematic way to do it at the same exact time. So I actually really appreciate. It's like it's probably my favorite part of the whole movie is the, that hospital scene to his resurrection. I think it's it's just a genius way of doing it, very intuitive as well as you know, like you said, it leaves because I remember even as a kid, right? You like I. I admitted at the beginning of this podcast the first time I saw RoboCop was that first trailer in the Firestarter yeah. break and you see him yeah so I, I already knew what he looked like but within the movie I remember there was such a build up to see him to when you to for us to break yeah. out of that POV but when he walks out of the room there he, we see him his, through his point of view we see him just for a split second on the on a screen yes. on a monitor yes. from a camera that's over the shoulder you, or you something know. or whatever so we see him just for a second and then when he gets to the old precinct you know all the bullshit going on and then you see him but you don't really see him because he walks by that diffused yeah, glass yeah like frosted glass or something you know and then yeah. every, all that you like the cops it's a build up You're, who the fuck yeah. is this guy you know and then you see him go in and then finally when you, you get the reveal when he's sitting in the chair and you know you being a, a big horror guy this gets into like the Gollum aspect of him oh sure yeah being like you know because I mean you take away all the other political I mean he elements. very much is like a corporate Frankenstein yes exactly or Gollum you yeah. know this is a, this the bare bones I guess that the theme of this is like it's a man who loses his identity and he has to get it back and very much so like a Frankenstein even in the old Frankenstein movies Certainly in Frankenstein 2, I, I don't remember Frankenstein 1 is black. Frankenstein 2. <laughs> back to the devil. He's back and he's fucking shut off. Frankenstein 2. No one in our army. Is that he's in that chair. Yeah. You know, yeah. and especially. Yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. In, in, I think it's Frankenstein 2, is they chain him up in that chair. You mean Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> I keep saying Frankenstein 2. He has Bride of Frankenstein. I'm, I'm sorry. Frankenstein 2. <laughs> that was the, uh, the, 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 the. They didn't want to go for that. It's, it's too much like the movie's going to be. Let's name it something else. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein. He's in that chair. Yeah. And they yeah. have him chained. So I was getting a lot of. Um, now, yeah, it's, a, it's it. a correlation that I didn't really make. You know that he's in. Uh, he has a chair to sit in. I feel like it's almost subconscious to be like a horror fan and yeah. see that imagery. You know, and it's a guy stuck in a in a, you know. And then I've always envisioned. I forget what movie it is. Maybe it's RoboCop two. But I feel like they do tell you. They actually show you how much of him is really in what's left. If there's some body parts, I forget. If they show you in two or three, like what's actually in his chest area. Well, see, in this one, it's supposed to be his actual face. Yeah, but see, I didn't. But then know. in another one, I don't know if it's. I think it's two. Like they replace his face because they're like it's like a foam. You know, it's a way of honoring 
Murphy. Yeah, but see, I didn't know in this one. I always thought it was his they, his head survived. Yeah, yeah. And I from you know childhood. Well, I, I always felt that way too until I watched it this time and you realize that like the skin goes back further than the ears would be. Yeah, and I always thought that was just them, you know, grafting it onto the robot. But I guess is the idea with the screen with Rob Bottin, who we haven't talked about yet, yeah, who is well, the. Well, I figured we were going to get to a Rob Bottin yeah. section. Of yeah, the which is which is I guess right now because <laughs> yeah. we're, we're introducing RoboCop. But yeah, it's like yeah. the idea was that. Um, it would be. I mean, it, this is how far you get into this to the to the uh, justification of the idea, is that if they were able to, the reasoning was, yeah. Excuse me, that's that beer coming back up on me. Excuse me, is that if um, some even even though they wipe the memory that we learn in the POV, they take they lose the arm, all that other kind of thing, and it's brilliant that that. Yeah, I also like too that it's like the you know it's they New Year's. You arm. see you see how much time is going by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love all that. Okay, exactly. We 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 already talked about full body prosthesis. So lose the arm, okay? <laughs> no, which is so fucked up because now you realize that he's everything about that he's conscious. Arm. Yes, that he's seeing, and he's, like, not he's even seeing this argument. It's like uh, you know, like the like the song one, you know, like the metallic. Yes. Like, yeah, he's, he's, he's stuck in there. He's like trapped. He's inside doing Morse code with his freaking <laughs> with his with his neck. What's he saying? SOS. He's saying, "Kill me <laughs> over and over again. Kill me." Yeah, it's like, like he's, a up he's kind of trapped in himself. Yeah, which is and horrifying. Yeah, when you think and about you don't it. know if he's gonna even remember this because they even say, "Is he fought? Is he, is, he, is he conscious? We're going to wipe his memory anyway. Yeah, forget it. But yeah. even if they do, if he's going to remember, like at that moment, yeah, he's, 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 he's conscious and he's experienced. It's almost like it. when you anybody who's uh, got, had surgery, you, you, you get knocked up on propofol and they knock you out. It's like you're conscious there for a second and then you're just yeah, gone. Yeah. You don't know what's going on. But they, so the idea was that even though they wipe his memories, if you put the consciousness into a robot, if the, pers- if the robot would see, the person would see themselves in a reflection and see the robot, even though the memory is wiped away, they'd have such a, a mental breakdown or a transient break yeah. that it could catastrophically destroy their... And that's I think you see elements of that in RoboCop 2. Remember all the people they have, like yeah, the robots yeah. fucking up, killing themselves? It's like, so <laughs> fucked up. Yeah, yeah. You know, that aspect inside the... Uh, no, that, the that's trying to like, redo RoboCop. RoboCop. So their idea was to take his face and then graft it onto a cyborg. And I didn't realize that, that was the actual... I, so they must have taken his eyes as well, or maybe those are just robotic eyes that yeah. look natural. His blue eyes, and they—they're actually they graft. So his, that if he ever saw himself, he would see Alex Murphy's face. Yeah, a semblance of of his old past, and then that, that's very telling too, which I think Peter Weller states in an interview where later on when he takes his helmet off and he says to Lois, he's like, you know. I see them, but I can't. The memories. The memories. Yeah. He sees them, but he can't remember them. Or I think he, he feels, feels them. He feels it, but he can't remember them, which is even more horrifying because then that gives you a more of an idea of when he's walking through that house. Yeah. Why he's just seeing these images and he doesn't know how to process them because he doesn't know their memories. Yeah. He's yeah. just seeing them almost like it's uh, a disruption in his program, or you know. Yeah. So that's so much more horrifying, and that's the reason why. You know, it's just such a fucked up thing to do, you know. And it becomes like <laughs> yeah. a Frankenstein. So you have then you have Rob Bottin comes into play, and I think he got this start because of the um, of the thing, right? I mean, not his start, but he got this job because he did such good work in the thing. Uh, yeah, probably. But again, that was another three years before that. I mean, the thing was the eighty two. Do you know what he did after that? Was he part of Starman or an all kind of thing? I know. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I know he helped out on the fog. He worked for Rick Baker. I uh, did the Howling, which was before, and yeah. then he did the Thing. Yeah. Um, the you know the crazy thing about Rob Bottin is like what 
And for people who don't know, he's the special effects guy. Yeah, he's a special effects guy who did the special effects for the thing, yeah. uh, for John Carpenter's the thing, and he did the transformation scenes and the howling and, um, what a talent! Like, like a boy genius. I mean, he was. Uh, when he was like 18, he did one of the masks in the cantina in Star Wars. And, on his own. Yeah, and he worked uh, for Rick Baker on the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong movie. And then he in ended 76. up doing The Howling, and then he did John Carpenter's The Thing, which is one of the greatest achievements in uh, makeup, cinematic makeup ever. Like, ever. Yeah. To this day. Holds up better than, um, you know, 99% of all special effects makeup. That stuff still holds up. Um, and he went on to do... He came on and did RoboCop. So he designed the suit. Uh, he did the Melting Man stuff towards the end of the movie. And he did the the, the face... You know, the way they grafted the face onto the thing. Um, so Rambo team, like... Like an absolute genius in special effects makeup. And they talk about how uh, he just butted heads like crazy with Verhoeven and Orion and stuff. And so much so that by the time they were shooting, like he couldn't even be on set. Yeah, he'd have his, he'd, he'd, just have his team be there. Like he'd just have his team be there. Like he just, they'd stop talking after a while. Now, I mean, we he's, he did do stuff after this, but now. I don't know if people realize, I mean, I'm sure there are some listeners that realize this, but Rob Bottin has dropped off the face of the earth. Like, nobody knows where he is, what happened to him. He hasn't done anything. It's like in, Richard Simmons, like he's in, just gone. In years. He was in the credits for, like, the Red Wedding sequence or whatever it's from. Oh, uh, like, I guess Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones, but nobody knows what he did on it. There's this rumor that he just got fed up and decided he was never going to work in the film business again and became a real estate agent in L.A. And that he lives like a perfectly happy life as a real estate Which agent. Which happens. I mean, in L.A. But nobody knows that. Like, That's not confirmed. That's, that's like a guy like Bill Withers who wrote like uh, Lovely Day and uh, you know, the, the, Just the Two of Us. You know, that He just got so sick of the, you know, the corporate pressures of what's music to write. He just yeah. stopped. And he's perfectly okay with just stopping. You know, you know, there was an early, you know, the first DVD release of the thing. There's a doc, big, great documentary um, that might be called like "Who Goes There?" Yeah, uh, based on the original short story, and he's in that. But that might be like the last time anybody's ever on screen appearance. <laughs> see him, you know, and he seems like perfectly into it, and he's very excited. He talks a lot about like working with Mike Plug on the storyboards, and he seems like definitely not like jaded. So from but, what you're saying, but when you see, when you read about like how miserable he was on RoboCop, and now you know thirty years later that at some point in the '90s or 2000s, he just dropped off the face. It was like. Hung it up. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, yeah, how far did he get? He got into like I don't know. We should have maybe nineties. Judy, <laughs> yeah, get off your your phone and get over here. Um, so you have an the, oh, my the phone's in, off. The initial idea of um, doing um, of getting the suit together was to figure out you know how you know what is what's he going to look like, and uh, the original three concept ideas I guess was the, a little uh, the British comic Judge Dredd at the time which you know, we've seen now have two renditions go to the theater yeah and it is very Judge I mean, we're going to get to the yeah. fact that they end up circling back around. yeah and then you have another guy it's a Japanese series called Space Sheriff Galvin and then also there's a Marvel comic called Rom which Rom makes appearances a couple times in the movie there's the kid uh, Murphy's kid yeah. has a comic book there I feel like Rom might have been R-O-M. like a toy 
turned comic book. Yeah, and also and that, could be wrong that was the idea book. of Ed 209 too. You've had these big Japanese kind of robots and they said with Ed 209 they wanted to look like as well as like how elements of like an animal and how it would track and have it also look like a Huey copter, the front of it. And then the big gun uh, turret you'd see like on a Huey. The uh, Huey being the copter you'd see like in Vietnam most predominantly. And, okay, so uh, here, so sorry to interrupt yeah, you. But Judy, this just in. Thanks, Judy. <laughs> Go back on your Okay, phone. so here's, here's something interesting. Yeah. Uh, a Miserable Time on Robocop, um, he did Interspace with Joe Dante, so he worked a lot with Joe Dante. Yeah. Uh, the Great Outdoors. Okay. But having such, having such a bad time with Verhoeven, it's surprising that he would then go on to do Total Recall. Yeah. And Basic Instinct. He did Seven, Mission Impossible, Fear Loathing Las Vegas, Fight Club, Charlie's Angels, uh, and Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler. Um, and then some he's and then the Game of Thrones. So from like 2002, like he really other than that one Game of Thrones episode, which he's quote credited in, but nobody really knows what he did. He hasn't worked since 2002. Well, they they I think they did have some sort of. I mean, it's it's it is uh, a common fact that they say that this this. The production of this movie was terrible. Yeah. Everybody hated it. They were in Dallas. It was the hottest time of the year to be in Dallas. They shot it from like July to like October of 86. Everybody was, you know, uh, having issues. We can get into what, you know, every, if you look at everybody's part in the movie, they were having issues for whatever reason. And Botine, when he gets the first ideas for the, um, for this, the concept of Robocop, he's getting six foot blocks of clay. Yeah, he does a full scale. Sculpture, Statue. yeah, he'll <laughs> sculpt, and then every I don't know what month or two months you'd have an exec or uh, Paul Verhoeven come and give critiques of what they like or they don't like about it. So every time you'd have to go fix something, he'd have to get another, he'd have to like find another block of six foot clay and then start over. So I don't know how long the, the you know, that went for, but yeah. they were designing the suit. It almost costs upwards to a million dollars to get this suit made. And then they have all these issues with the suit once it's done, figuring out how, how it's going to look. But how also much part gonna... of it was that, there, like, all, like a lot of aspects of this, the script was the same way, apparently, as well as the sculpt, which is like they started someplace, made all these changes, and then ended up just reverting, reverting very yeah. close to what the original one was. Yeah. And if you look... His original sculpt is very uh, Metropolis. Yeah. You know, like the robot in Metropolis. And apparently they tried to get away from that. Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And then it just ended up kind of circling back around. So, like, it's unfortunate. You know, I'm sure it's this way in a lot of business, but definitely in a creative business. I see it in television as well as you can see it in movies. Like, sometimes you don't. You have to try all these other things before you realize that that's not what you want. Yeah, you know, Verhoeven talks about how he changed. He wanted to change the script. Wanted to add like a love affair between Lewis and Murphy, which is very funny at the beginning. Because he movie. says he's very. He was it's, very like, it's a very European. Yeah, thing I'm to European. Do. That's what you do in Europe. You add love affairs, and you kind of. And I was going to say you do see a little tension between them at the beginning. Uh, a little you know, bit, but you know, they're so. They only. I mean, they know each other for like, like a, less than twenty four yeah, hours. Yeah. So you get that little like, hey, I'm new, you're new. Let's you know see how this um, goes. So you can see why Boutine would be frustrated. But at the end of the day, it's that's unfortunately that's a creative process sometimes. And that's very that's a very relevant thing in Hollywood. I mean, I saw a Q and A with Eastwood some years ago, and he says that you know when you get a script, what usually happens is you get to copy the script. And then, you know, you, you don't want to do too many rewrites because you're just going to muck it up. And then you're going to realize that the first one was the best you've ever had, you know. Yeah, so yeah. that's an issue that 
sadly, it's like an exercise in futility. You see that over and over again. And um, I, th I think one of the things that Verhoeven was saying that he wanted to keep and, and his maybe the, the minor and um, new minor new minor the, the the writers too were that they wanted to keep it which i like is the sleekness of it is a product of detroit like 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 a car yeah, yeah. smooth lines contoured you know very much like aerodynamic like he looks like a product of something that would come out of like a you know a motor city kind of a yeah you yeah. know and uh so you have while they're designing the script or the, the suit you have Peter Weller's cast as, you know, they, they have other, they, there's a big what if game in this too. They have, they're thinking of Rugger Howard, they're thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Robocop. Michael Ironside. Michael Ironside, but they're quickly realizing that uh, not so much with Schwarzenegger because he is so big, but those other guys, they're normal, semi normal physiques, even though they're, they're built guys, that once you put the stuff on them, it's going to, but I wonder if you made it proportionate to their bodies, would it be that much? I don't know. I, I do get it. Would it just it would be a very large, bulky thing? Yeah. And so Schwarzenegger would have been like, uh, it's terrible. Like, 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 like a two o nine. walking around. Yeah, exactly. So they ended up wanting to cast somebody that was had a very slender build. Yeah. So that when they put the the suit on top of them, it wasn't so big. It looks almost normal because you're building off of somebody's yeah uh, body. So you can't if you start with somebody big already, building off of that's going to make it even more big and bulky. It look huge. So they had to cancel out a lot of people they wanted, and then uh, they were having issues with uh, Weller for a bit. They actually even looked at Lance Henriksen as well uh, between that the time. Been cool. Because he successful in Terminator and Aliens, but then I guess there was uh, scheduling conflicts as well, and maybe they realized his b body was a little bigger. Although he seems like a sinewy guy, pretty like thin. jacked. Or, oh yeah. Um, so they settle on um, Peter Weller. Weller has an idea of he wants to try to figure out like method of how to go about um, the movement. So yeah. he hires this really astound, uh, well um, esteemed mime coach called Moni um, Yakim from uh, Juilliard, who still works at Juilliard, who I guess a documentary just came out recently on the guy's life. Yeah. He still like teaches. The BBC or something. And um, they work together he for... He was a movement coach, studied under like the great French mimes and all this stuff. And so they went. And I wonder if Weller might be a Juilliard guy, too. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of guys from like that generation, like Christopher Reeves and even uh, Robin Williams, uh, Kevin Klein. A lot of the people from his generation were known as being Juilliard guys. I wonder if he is, or they just happen to find this Juilliard kind of movement coach. I know he was he he, he auditioned a couple people, but he settled on yeah. the um, uh, and he spent a long time with the guy. And it's his. The stories are very funny because he says this guy is a. Uh, ex-Israeli soldier who was through wars. He's, you know, he's a little older, so he has such a temperament. Uh, another one of these European temperaments, where no matter what happens, he's very calm, cool, collective. So when everyone's freaking out at stuff, he's very, he's the like the the, the kind of like the man of reason. Yeah. So they work on this whole thing, and this is weird because it's never really explained. Um, they work on this movement. They say he best describes it as like a legato. Yeah. Where it's going to be like the snake-like serpentine yeah. kite movement. So. He, he's like he's gonna like dance around. <laughs> like, he's no, gonna, like, I just imagine it being much like smoother more and fluid yeah. than even um, you know than even a natural person. You know, like 
Because you could go either way. You know, you could go with, like they talk about with Terminator, like yeah. the way Schwarzenegger, like he moves the eyes, moves the eyes the and his, and, or like when he's cleaning the gun or, <laughs> or using the guns and stuff, he's got to take like the most, as a machine, he's got to take like the, yeah, the shortest, you know, route to it. You know, the most efficient yeah. way of doing things is how a machine would do it. So you could go with like, what ends up being, which we're, we're going to get into, which is very much dictated by the suit, which is they now have to make it go big, slow, almost like uh, hydro, hydraulic yeah. ninja. Which is <laughs> a shout out to a really <laughs> inside joke from fucking 20 years ago. Hydraulic ninja. Always <laughs> um, oh, you, you go that way, yeah. which is very like uh, like a like a mechanic, traditional, I guess. You know, most like a, like a robot or even like a factory machine. Yeah. You know, or you say the machine would be so uh, efficient that it would be so smooth and almost like fluid and serpentine. Yeah. So he so Weller spent all this time with um, Moni Yakim working this whole thing out, and then uh, the suit never came, and when they. I guess the suit was delayed because of whatever reason, and then finally the, well, the suit's not ready till like the first the day. Most because they kept on changing yeah, it so many keep, times. Yeah, <laughs> so they finally get to this. They get there the first day, and it takes like something like the first day to use it on film. It takes like ten hours. Everybody has it's like eight, ten, twelve hours to get yeah. Peter Weller into the outfit. And the issue they're having is that when they're putting stuff on him, they're not realizing that like say like his, the shoulder part is rubbing against the chest, or the or he can't walk because of this, or it's bulky, he can't turn, yeah. and he quickly realizes realizes that everything he's practiced with um, his mime coach is out the window. Yeah, it's not going to work. It's a suit. So he, justifiably so, Weller kind of has a temper tantrum. says, I can't freaking start. Because, because you know. the thing on production is like, everybody's, that's, a, that's one of the kind of downsides of having a collaborative um, industry, a collaborative art form, which is... Yes, you have all these this team of people coming together for one common purpose, but everybody thinks their but because of human nature, everybody thinks their section of the movie is most important. Yes, <laughs> so they're putting the suit on, trying to get the suit on them, but at the same time, time is money. They're burning light, daylight, whatever. Production's like, come on, we got to shoot, we got to shoot, we got to shoot. Finally, he's ready. Like, okay, let's shoot, and he's like, no, we can't shoot because. I can't move in this thing. Yeah, and whatever. I, and production I doesn't give a fuck because they're like, well, the, to production, it's money burning. Actors yeah. are you know cattle. Yeah, you know like you know they 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 all probably laugh at methody people. A lot of them anyway probably laugh at methody type actors because they don't understand the process because they think you know whatever. It's just they're all labor guy, labor union guys. You yeah, know? it's all it's a union job to them. It's not art form. Yeah. So, so everybody's trying to get everybody to do their aspect of the job, but when an actor needs to create something that's going to be what fuses this entire movie together like this movie's not going to work until Peter Weller figures out how, he how, his head around in how, how, how RoboCop's going to walk yeah you know, which seems not- something like you would never conceive but that is actually something you're going to have to like you know especially for the idea that he had hired a mime coach he'd worked however long yeah. on developing it and then you have to throw that completely out the window and now you're you can't just improvise because it can look silly and also I think he was he wasn't trusting of the suit yet because it was so bulky and it you know and as well as we're, we're again we're talking about like he's in it's almost built on like a wetsuit kind of a frame because yeah. it's a harness apparatus so there there there's 
stories where he's like losing three pounds a day because he's getting so dehydrated. Yeah, one, so, it's Texas in the middle of the summer. Yeah, so it's like 112 degrees. They're shooting inside half the time. So he's in this suit that's not refrigerated or has no air conditioning. So uh, Kirkwood Smith says every time they felt fatigued and they, yeah. you know, they the other actors were felt like they were had a bad. They look at Peter Weller who's sitting in this. He looks like Frankenstein in the suit with the helmet off. Just you know, <laughs> he's got all these tubes stuck in him that are just blowing cold air down him. So. Uh, Weller uh, makes Paul Verhoeven stop production down for like two or three days, and Verhoeven was mad at the time, but he says, I guess maybe soon after, or even you know, not today, certainly, that he completely understands and it was the right call. Yeah. That, uh, and, and then that was, while everyone's flipping out there, uh, you have uh, Moni Yakim, who's the voice of reason, who's been through world wars and stuff. He's just like, hey, let's just... Let's, this is the reason why people are pissed. Verhoeven's pissed because this is his movie. He's Hungarian. He's European. They're very sensitive people. They're too sensitive. The, 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 the scriptwriters are mad because this is their first movie. You know, this, you know, Botin's mad because it's his thing. So let's just all. So he takes Weller out into the back to the parking lot, and they work on it for a couple hours to get this. And that's the idea you just said that. Yakim gets the idea. Let's slow everything down and, and turn it instead. Exaggerate everything. Yeah. And Weller thinks that's not going to work. But then, as they start doing it, I guess it starts to work. And they even reference Ivan the Terrible. He doesn't he say he has him go yeah, watch yeah. like what's his face's movie and watch the performance. Of Eisenstein. Eisenstein's. Uh, uh, watch the I, the actor who played Ivan the Terrible in it to watch his performance. And that's what Weller finally realizes that it. It's the exaggeration of the performance that makes the performance so memorable as opposed to just doing it straight on because it won't be as yeah, yeah, on yeah. point. Because, you know, in films, certainly in films, but certainly in theater, you need a level of exaggeration for it to be somewhat believable, which is hard to wrap the head around. But yeah, yeah. a lot of times, especially in theater, that's why sometimes the theatrical actors have a problem going to film because they're used to being so flamboyant and so theatrical because you need to be able to have your movements be so exaggerated so the guy in the back row can see you. But then when you go to the camera, you can't do the yeah. same thing. So there's a very or hard... same reason as a viewer who, you know, li breathes, lives and breathes cinema and growing up watching cinema, sometimes, at least for me anyway, I go see a play and I'm like, uh, I'm like uh, yeah, you can't, you don't really like understand. So, it's so wild. It's like play acting just seems so foreign to yeah, me. It seems like, it's such a different beast. Um, so they get an idea down and I guess and then they, they say that it was, you know, they were going to shoot a test and the test was going to be sent to the executives at Orion. That would be how the movie would be greenlit if they were to keep going. Yeah. And Peter Well and everybody was so worried about this test. But, you know, Yakim got them calmed down. They, they worked something out. Even Kirkwood Smith says, like, you know, he'd see them out in the, in the parking lot walking around, you know, just working, trying to get stuff down. And then it ends up working. And they shot the test, it looked great, and then they were able to commence principal photography. And the next thing they said the issue with the suit was that it was supposed to be blue. But the thing was so bright with reflecting light, they yeah. had to like really oil it to like mat it down so it wouldn't be so reflective. Yeah. They're having a lot of issues with the reflecting of the um, with the lights and stuff like that. So they had to they had to figure that out. So um, a lot went into that, which is which is amazing. And then even like the thing with they had they were going to use a Desert Eagle to be his his gun, which is a relatively new gun, which is like I think it's a forty four automatic, a Desert Eagle. And that's the, the, the gun you see in the boardroom scenes, the gold yeah. one. That was the gun that they were going to use. But in RoboCop's hand, it was just so small. Yeah, even it didn't though it's look a great. giant gun. But yeah, in the context it, of the suit, the proportion. It, it just looks tiny. silly. So they took a Beretta uh, 92R, which is this great gun they developed for terrorism, which is it's a Beretta handgun. People know Beretta's best from Dur um, Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson, and 
Die Hard, Bruce Willis, they use Berettas in that movie. Uh, I forget the name of the model. It's a very classic model. But the Beretta here is just the shot. It shoots. A th it has the capacity to shoot a three burst, and they love that idea. You know, so they took it, and, and it wasn't even available in the states yet. They had to clear it to get into the United States. You know, they had to know where it was going because you don't want this thing getting on the street—a a, semi-automatic or an automatic handgun. Yeah. And uh, they put a, like a compressor on the top of it. They made it look a little cooler than it looked, and they extended the barrel to have it. So the muzzle blast will not only go out forwards, but it'll go out the side and give, give a real big kind of a look. And they invented it, and then this gun became Robocop's like signature gun, which I think looks awesome in the movie as well. Yeah, yeah. And then you know it, it, it adds again to the level of the character. And for me too, it's, it's funny that uh, I'm a semi kind of car guy, and this was the first movie I ever saw the four Tauruses. Yeah, yeah. So for me, when I saw this, those cars looked so futuristic. You know, these <laughs> yeah, were the first. Yeah. You know, and I guess I don't know if I don't think Tauruses were out at the time, um, but seeing them in the movie, it's like wow, they really spent all this money making cars look futuristic when it didn't. They was just they they had the opportunity, they seized them, getting them from Ford, they used them, and Ford Tauruses in the next couple of years after this movie they became like the staple. Suburban, the the Ford Taurus and the Mercury Sable were like the cars people used yeah, domestically. Yeah, they were all over the place. All over the place, like you know, either the sedan or like the um, station wagon version, and even police used them up until like the Crown Victoria took over. And now, which is funny, Ford cabs, ca yeah, cabs started using them. Yeah, they were everywhere, and then. Crown Victoria's Crown Vicks took over, and they became the official car for police and poli New York City police ca uh, cabs yeah. until about 2011. Ford stopped making Crown Vicks, and they kind of phased them out. Police, and then you see now with taxis, taxis have phased them out like two years ago. And with the Taurus, they started re Ford started remaking the Taurus, and now police use tourist models they call them police interceptors but that's the new model that now that you see police use all over the country or these new new versions of tauruses which they call the police interceptor so i thought it was so like uh forward thinking but it's funny because it's not any production you know it's not like blade runner where they have to fabricate a car yeah, yeah. you know there is a couple um frames i saw production stills where it looks like they had like a fabricated police car for RoboCop, but I never saw where that ended up being. Yeah, you well, know. I mean, they must have fabricated. Must have fabricated this six thousand SUX. Yeah, right? yeah, that was off. Of, <laughs> it's funny. That's off like a mid seventies. Uh, I think it's a Buick um, Cutlass. And growing up, we had a. That's a four door. We had a two door Buick Cutlass. So it's very funny to see. To think that's the car we had, and that's the with, with the this huge bulky car, yeah. the the you know the six thousand SUX, which I never even realized till I watched it. Now you see it sucks, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So and it's funny to think of like the frame that thing's put on, you know. And that's that's the bigger power, you know. Bigger is better. That was always a thing with America until, I guess, the seventies with the. Uh, the oil and the gasoline shortage, and they realize we shouldn't make the cars endless. We need to make them aerodynamic, smaller, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, redefine them, and you don't really know. Now they're just looking completely odd. But it's yeah, it's such a um, an innovative thing there. So we get to, we get to see the, the suit now, and then it's like, you know, it's a kind of off to the races where he starts to have this issue of him trying to figure out. You know, I think the first idea he has of himself being you know he starts having these nightmares right these night tremors of him like you know seeing um his own death and reliving it yeah, which is yeah. kind of really freaky and then i mean it's a really interesting the whole thing of like conscious and subconscious and uh memory and stuff like that. this is something that always fascinates me and whenever i try to pursue like writing my own stuff like original material it ends up 
always kind of reverting back to this kind of subject matter. So I do kind of find all this stuff interesting. Um, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but, uh, you know, I was curious because I don't think you and I have ever talked about it. Have you seen the remake? No, I never saw the remake. I wanted to, but then I heard bad things about it. And um, I had a lot of issues. I can't judge the movie since I haven't seen it. Yeah. But I had a lot of issues even in the trailer because in the trailer, he's kind of like, what have you done to me? Where it's yeah, like yeah. there's a self-awareness there, which I thought which I th- I completely, mean, I- completely uh, undermines the whole journey that he has in the original movie of finding himself again and it's realizing... It's just a different journey. You know? Yeah. It's like, as someone who isn't as connected to the, the original yeah. as a lot of people are, uh, I found the re- the remake like perfectly fine. Yeah, I mean it, it's a different. It's just a different, like telling of the tale. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's like it's his the the hero's journey is just a different journey. Yeah, you know it's not about like losing your human humanity and then like regaining your humanity. It's about like how humanity deals with like what is like what is humanity like what are what makes you human mm. you know he's a head and a pair of lungs inside of a machine yeah <laughs> you know and and, that, yeah. and so he's wrestling with like am i man or am i machine do, but do you they know? strip his memory as they do in this or i don't think so because he has like a phone he has like video calls with like his wife and kid and they have to put the camera like really close so that all they can see is his face because his wife and kid don't know that he's a, his wife doesn't know he's a machine oh, yet. Great googly moogly, you know. And there's this whole th- it, I don't know. You should see it. Yeah, I, I've, I've never I haven't strayed I mean, away from it. It's got Gary Oldman and Michael Keaton. I know. How bad could it be? I know. That's that's always in Samuel L. Jackson. That's been the lore. And uh, what's his face? Uh, uh, what's the little guy from Brand New Bears? Who's Jackie Earl Haley? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I didn't purposely stay away from it. I just heard some pe- people who liked the original didn't like that. Yeah, so then yeah. it just, and then I never got around to it. And uh, I mean, it's a different. But I like, like the I said, idea. It's a different story. So I find it interesting in yeah. that it's it's a totally different uh, conflict that the main character is dealing with. Yeah, and I, I, this is interesting, but I find that one equally as interesting for different reasons. Yeah, because I find it so fascinating and almost like. Uh, like sad and disheartening in a way like the scene where he goes back in this movie where he goes back to the house and he's trying to figure out where he's from and and uh, the neighborhood to me looked very much like um, our first podcast we did on the um, uh, Dolph Lundgren uh, Punisher yeah like yeah. that neighborhood where his family blows up at the beginning looked like the, like their next door neighbors to like uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to his family and it's I always thought Especially this viewing, it was so touching that he's walking through this house. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and he's yeah. trying. He's having these memories. He doesn't know what to, how to process them or deal with them. I mean, it's Mike. You know, you know, if if the scene of his, you know, hospital to kind of him becoming Robocop POV stuff is my favorite part of the movie. Like that's my second favorite part yeah. of the movie. Is him journeying almost instinctually. I mean, I guess he finds out yeah, who Murphy he is guy. on the machine and stuff. But it's like he's drawn to it, and he doesn't know why. Yeah, you know, so it almost is like instinct being pulling him to this. And location. then he finds like pictures, and I was wondering, and this is, they're burnt. I wonder if it's something like maybe the wife and disgust are so sad she threw stuff in the fireplace. And yeah, tried to burn that's stuff. you don't understand because it's know? sitting like on the kitchen counter. Yeah, so maybe they were just clearing stuff out and they left it there. So there's some stuff that has like flowers that are kind of burnt. You know, um, t- the, his whole journey into finding himself is he dis- he stumbles across one of these. 
the original team of villains, and I think the entire crew of villains that Bodiger oversees, I think, are amazing. My favorite as a kid was the black guy had that yeah. really great laugh and I always thought he didn't have a very good death compared to everybody else but I guess <laughs> it just kind of gets yeah, he just said he just sat <laughs> and, then, and then they said that the original in the script his death was that he was going to fall get impaled on something and then like was going to be um, just torn apart by wild dogs which that would that, that would have been a Perfect suitable death. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I loved in the cocaine factory, he doesn't. The, the the Asian guy dies, but he does. He just gets knocked out. That guy. I was like, what happened to him? And he's like, Bleh, pee. you know. <laughs> um, but when Robocop stumbles across the one guy who um, has been on our podcast before, because he's in the remake of the Blob. He's in the remake of the Blob, and I do have to point out that he's also well. One, he was in Fame, but two, uh, because I've been revisiting. In my favorite movie series of all time, the Rocky series. Yes. In the beginning, towards the beginning of Rocky Two, when he first gets out of the hospital, and there's like a TV agent trying to get him to sign a contract to do advertising, and it's, he just wants to take Adrian to the gym, uh, to the zoo because he's going to propose oh, yeah. to her. As they're leaving the hospital, Paul McCrane. As they're leaving the hospital, the nurse is wheeling this guy in a full body cast. Like, the only thing you can see is, like, his face and, like, some red hair sticking out from the top of the thing. And he's like, hey, Rock, can I get, can you sign my cast? And Rock, like, he, like, signs his face, like, signs his head, like, the cast on his head. Yeah. And, uh... And they have an exchange. It's him as like a kid, as oh, like a teenage yeah, I was kid. Say, he's younger in that, in that by that because he's young in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's like a teenage kid, like in a full body cast on a wheelchair. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, let's sign it. He's like, you know, it's freaking. Be- it's that's amazing. He uh, that this then this is another thing going back to my childhood that that scene at the gas station utterly terrified me. Yeah. That, where he almost, I didn't feel any of the feelings now watching it. Maybe because I'm so numb to it, but as a kid. The whole it seemed so much longer to me the interaction between him and the gas station attendant, yeah, yeah, and that frightened me so much. Like, this guy's just trying to get his you know, he's trying to work through college, he's working nights, yeah. he's a college to boy, be like an engineer, or something. yeah, like, just geometry, like, like play, but like you know, plain geometry. <laughs> and, and he and this guy's gonna just kill him, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. I found that that he's trapped, yeah, in this glass box that's supposed to protect him, and, which and is I, also terrible. I find it so frightening that whole aspect, you know, that's that. that's the kind of stuff that does like we talked about it in. Halloween 2, when we talked about Halloween 2, I like, this is happening in a hospital, which is a place that's supposed to be a place that takes care of you, and all of a sudden you're trapped. It becomes like this weird maze where you're trapped. Yeah. And it becomes this, you know, like something you can, like this, the glass, I mean, they should have had a better glass set up. Yeah. yeah. Especially an old Detroit. <laughs> yeah, like, you know? like with, the, with the drawer that yeah. comes out. And it's As opposed to that, and you know. stuff. But uh, he's kind of in this glass booth that's supposed to be what protects him, but instead he's like a caged animal that's just like ready to be like poked and prodded yeah, it's, and shot. It's, it's so you know? it was it was so upsetting, and that's another aspect of this movie that that really upset me. That and like the bad guys are just so bad in the movie, like in the sense of they're just they're, they're, the apathy where they don't care. You know, they 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 completely blow Murphy away, and then they're all like high fiving each other later, and they yeah, walk yeah. out. I didn't realize until this viewing that they all have shotguns. They're all each shotgun is a different model for their partic- particular type. Um, I love the scene with like we haven't really got into Miguel Ferrer's character, but like his. Interaction with uh, with uh, what's his face uh, Dick Jones like in the bathroom where it is almost like there's even for me as a kid I, f- I almost saw like a little like homosexual eroticism in it and you know where there is like a sly seduction and then yeah, you know he, yeah. he grabs him by the hair and you know and then later on when he's with the two bitches in the um, in, in doing coke and then 
uh, Boddicker shows up. I love that whole scene of the three villains together and, and Boddicker, him telling, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, give, I'll pay you whatever he wants. And him like so over the top, like when he takes the, 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 the grenade pin out with his tongue. I, you know, you're just <laughs> yeah, so great, yeah. all that stuff. And then um, leading up to like the cocaine scene in the big factory, you know, in the big shootout, and then with Robocop, you know. Which you has, like, that one stunt guy that's in everything. With the, with the mustache. And the guy with the yeah, mustache. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's great. I, I noticed him over the left shoulder, the other guy. Yeah, he, he's the one with the AK that I think he gets shot, and he, then he shoots his, he turns like, yeah, and shoots, and he shoots his boss, you know. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Uh, he's in so much from back then. Yeah, and um, I like the, you know, then Robocop is becoming unhinged in a sense, or he's, you know, he's throwing him through the, bodyguard through the glass, and, you know, I love all that. Um there's just so much to talk about, and I feel like I, I feel like we're winding down because we're on a time constraint because of, we had such technical dis- yeah, at issues. Yeah, at two or nine, we should talk about it at two or nine. Yeah, and see, that's another thing where it's we, we it seems like another running theme this year has been like pre CGI. Yeah, you know, yeah. with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I'm sure there's other movies. Well, I mean, we I'm sure it's a, that's a, I'm sure it's a little bit of a theme of the whole show. I yeah, mean, I mean, when we talked about Labyrinth, exactly. And well, now it's like that is at two or nine is all stop motion. Uh, all stop motion by the great Phil Tippett. Yeah. Who uh, you know did Star Wars and was going to do the effects for uh, Jurassic Park, mm. and then instead what they ended up doing was creating like just an armature connected to a computer, and so he did a lot of it. And then they just CGI. And, and over then, it. but they, what happened is instead of having them f- film it, they just recorded the movements that he created with stop motion. To my recollection, I haven't yeah, seen yeah, the yeah. making of Jurassic Park since like 1995. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to my remember, because I always knew who Phil Tippett was because of Star Wars and uh, you know doing a lot of the stuff and the the Tauntaun running through the snow. But even, but even the so the, there's such detail, like he like he says, even like on the back of Ed 209, like the um, the screws turn in, you yeah, know. Yeah. And then I didn't know until watching some of the making of stuff that they even used like um, cotton. To, to, to do like uh, muzzle blasts for the yeah, 209 yeah. shooting because they, they, they wanted it to be, you know, we talked about layers of film and every time you put something over something for an effect, you kind of yeah. lose a level of clarity and, you know, it kind of yeah, dulls it, it down. Yeah, it like the next generation. You have generational problems just like a photocopy or a cassette tape back yeah. in the day. So they're saying he, he was very cognizant of that. So one of the things he tried to do was he put over muzzle blast for Ed 209 so that it wouldn't have to be done post by somebody else and what they did was they used like uh, cotton in a certain way with like uh, they, they hooked up a couple wires and they would you know put diffusion on the camera backwind it put it there and then shoot it and then every frame they would just change the cotton yeah, and then, yeah. then it looks like it's you know. I mean it's a crazy art form stop yeah. motion it takes like a certain kind of brain to be able to just to be able to figure out one like frame one frame shoot it. how far you have to move it to make it look natural all this stuff and you think I about mean, all the the misses where you shoot an entire roll of film and you go back and it doesn't look good at all yeah or, or it looks good because except it's going to take you like an entire day to do like you know, five seconds. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, who knows if it's going to be crap or not, or you you made the wrong move. What or, I found know. interesting was the aspect of doing, and because they didn't want to do the matte painting, I mean, not the the the, the matting at double exposures and stuff. Uh, for what you're talking about, the generational thing that they used a rear screen projection. Yes. On them to make to put them in the same room as people, which means that they would like make a movement. Click the projector one frame. One frame, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, know, so then that, you got to watch out and see if your 
since you're mirroring all that onto one piece of film, you can't take out. So if your Ed 209 is off from the movement of the rear, the principal actors in yeah. real screen projection, that and then you have up. to light the thing to look exactly like it would be lit in that room. Yeah, I mean it is such a it's, crazy process, but I have to say that like. Uh, the Ed 209 stuff is fucking beautiful. It's amazing. And amazing to look at. Sure, there's this stop motion yeah, aspect to it. Kind of, uh, you know, movement that. But that stuff is, I feel like, probably a lot of people that listen to the show, and I, I would imagine you do too. It, there's something do so, so beautifully. Oh, it's amazing. Nostalgic about the way that thing, about the way they move. If you tried to CGI that, then now it would look terrible. You know, I mean, now it would look fine. But I'm saying I'm back sure then, the ones in the, the you know, movie must be CGI'd. But there's some. But, but I mean, I'm saying if you tried to use CGI back then, if yeah, they had the yeah. money, I don't think it would hold up. You know, no, as well no. as this does. It'd have the same kind of problems that we talked about with uh, Last Starfighter. Yeah, you which know, has a certain look and it's fun. To look back, but that's also a movie that's supposed to be based on a video game. Yeah, so, so it, it almost kind of works aesthetically. To, yeah, this is you know, and it blends. They had a they had an actual um, physical prop they they had fabricated of Ed Two Hundred Nine, and I never noticed until the side by side comparison. But they talk about how uh, it was so bulky and big, the head of Ed Two Hundred Nine kind of flattened a little the practical model. Uh-huh. And then when you look at the model they made for the stop motion, it looks true to form, and you could tell that head's a little higher. Yeah, it's yeah. a little more because the, the 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 actual heavy the the practical one that they made that was full size kind of weighed down move, and it had very limited movement and stuff like that. And it's just such a interesting idea that it's just such a bulky thing that you know it's supposed to be technologically advanced, but it can't do anything. Yeah, you know it's very awkward. I mean, can you imagine that in like a, they call it what an urban pacification? How can that thing <laughs> interfere? You know, you just it's well, that's yeah. the absurdity it's of it. But it's got two like military. yeah, you know, it, and then. Uh, like even then, like later on, they get fifty cows. Uh, those are the weapons that Bodiger gets, yeah, and yeah. they just dress them up. They put like a laser scope sight on it to make it look better. And fifty cows you see in movies all the time now, sniper rifles, very much in uh, Miami Vice, the last movie um, Michael Mann did, the live action movie. They're using fifty cows in that, yeah, and that's yeah. a devastating projectile because it's almost like a eight or nine inches long. The projectile that thing shoots out of, yeah. Um, but my, but at two hundred nine, my point was that you have. Uh, Robo team, yeah, of doing makeup, and then on the other end of practical uh, physical effects, you have Phil Tippett, who's like a legend. He's another legend, yeah. Even you know bigger at that time probably than even Robo team was. Uh, so I mean, the amount of talent that comes together to make this movie, um, plus you know Peter Weller, you know, aside from even all of the miming and stuff, and the you know like what a great. Performance because it's a tough performance to pull off yeah. to be a machine, but yet be able to you know uh, emote and and be able to have that arc uh, that that RoboCop has to have. Um, Nancy Allen, of course, who she wasn't the first choice. The other there was a what if with what's her face, uh, Stephanie Zimbaldist, who was what from Remington Steel. Yeah. She was the actress from Remington Steel, but Nancy Allen. I mean, you know, she's good. We she's good, and of you know, and it's of course, I think most cinephiles have a little crush on her from Carrie. Uh, not necessarily even Carrie because she's such a cunt, Carrie, but uh, but from you know, like Blowout and yeah. and Dress to Kill because she's. She's hot. And it's interesting what Vera Hoven did was he had her cut her locks, cut her yeah. hair to make her look gender neutral, make her look more like a, you know, like he was going for that. The fe- but you also know. you would imagine that uh, it would probably be like police issue, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
to have hair underneath that helmet or that becomes something that someone that you're trying to wrestle with that can grab onto, you know? Yeah. Um, also, we should make mention of the matte painter in it, Rocco uh, Geoffrey. Geoffrey? <laughs> sorry, Rocco. Yeah. <laughs> Rocco Geoffrey, I'm sorry. Uh, he painted not on glass, but he painted on masonite. Huh. And they say the reason that, the, funny enough, the reason why they, he might not paint it on glass because he had he used to drop the glass and break the glass a lot. So he used to paint on masonite, but he had an idea of, because it's interesting to look at all this stuff of future Detroit, yeah, to cities, all matte painting and you know on the highways or even at the end, um, this, the building they're using for OCP is actually the courthouse, and they add the whole top like bit. the tower, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was heavily influenced by Forbidden Planet. And you look at Forbidden Planet, a lot of the matte painting in Forbidden Planet, when they're inside the planet, yeah. there's these like you know caverns that go like for infinity, and that's where you get like in the elevator bits sure, in yeah. OCP. You see these things go on, for, these lines that go on forever. And I thought that was a really unique way of doing it because he's. And then he said like by the eight. By like 1997, people would ask him if he's, if as a matte painter, you're you're going to do this in the computer, right? Not practically. So you could see how it's even phased out by then. You know, it's becoming a lost art. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Physically matte painting, you know, and we've talked about matte painting before. So there's well, just I was so just many elements about matte of this. A lot. Yeah. The black hole specifically. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's just so many elements of this movie that just, uh, you know, Lee Iacocca Elementary School, which I think was a hilarious <laughs> reference. Yeah, Lee yeah. Iacocca was well, a... A lot of people now, the only young, a younger audience doesn't know who Lee Iacocca Yeah, was. he was a guy who was a, an executive who was brought in to, like, save Ford, and he kind of pioneered, he put out the Mustang and the Pinto, and then he saved Chrysler in the Chrysler 80s. Chrysler Dodge. Yeah. yeah. Um, Daimler Chrysler, he did that. And then um, it's just, it's so... I don't know. It's just it's so yeah, I disturbing. Feel like I feel like we weren't doing this justice, but I do feel like we also hit most of, if not all, of the points we really yeah. want to make. We had a lot of what ifs too. I mean, they had a lot of other directors who who would who'd come in and done stuff, you know, yeah, or that, that they wanted to, to to find people for. But you know, it just uh, Verhoeven seemed like the right guy, and that's why they 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 sent it to he him. Seemed he like seemed like an yes. odd choice, but you know, seemed like uh, like I said, you needed somebody. You couldn't use like a generic director. You needed somebody that had a specific vision to kind of make a world that was going to be uh, not necessarily realistic, but believable. Yeah. And um, it's all because of his wife, because I guess when he first got the script, it's (laughs) funny. Probably also judging by the title, he thought it was, he read like a little bit of it, he thought it was crap, and he threw it on the floor. Apparently, his wife ended up picking it up, reading it. And then went to him and said, yeah, I think you really should reread, like, read this whole thing because, one, it's violent as shit. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, right up your alley. And he's like, ooh, <laughs> I do like and violence. And two, like, it's, it's, say, it's saying more than I think you think it's saying. And so he reread it and ended up really liking it. So, uh, you know, thanks to his wife for giving us RoboCop. Yeah. And At least the have, RoboCop that we know and love today. Without Mrs. Verhoeven. Um, the scene in the, when they're using the 50 cals in the downtown Detroit when they get the when they blow the cars up and they get out of jail. I guess they were too close to one of the explosions. Kirkwood Smith and the other guy from what's his name? From um, Ray Wise. Yeah. So they, he got like pieces of glass embedded in his cheek at that scene like that you know yeah. a lot of it seems like borderline dangerous what they were doing a lot of the, <laughs> you know what I mean like a lot of the yeah. parts of this kind of thing you know and of course the melting man scene yes so yeah there we go another thing where it's like to me as a child that scared the absolute shit out of me like seeing and very him, different from the television you know, cut exactly and that's another thing where they that they they shot two scenes because I remember watching the television cut and he swerves and the television cut, he doesn't get him, but then, and of course, we know the film version, he hits him. Yeah, yeah. And he splatters him all over. So there's this big tank of... Uh, toxic everybody waste. Everybody remember, at this old steel mill, there's a big tank of toxic waste. 
uh, truck crashes into it. The guy that's driving the truck, who uh, played by Paul McCrane, uh, the guy from Rocky Two that we were talking about, and yeah. also from the Blob remake, he ends up coming. He ends up getting the the brunt of this. Yeah, and his skin is just kind of like melting off, like falling off his body. And it's so disturbing. Yeah, it's, it's you know, and then so the same goes up to Ray Wise, and he's like, "Heavy, he's like, get away from me! Man. Don't touch me, man!" <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so. And then, he, and then Boddicker hits him in the car, and it's just like slime yeah. all it's over. It's not the... even blood; it's like yellow yeah. and bile and stuff like that. Uh, it's, so fucked it's up. It's so, it's so good in a way, you know. And then even the end, you know, with with the car flipping over and all that, and just the whole end scene. Um, up to the end where he gets he goes and he kills Dick Jones I love that part where he's like you know I can't he's yeah, director yeah. four and then when he says you're fired he's like thank you you know it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like he almost knew you know um, so I mean like the what ifs they said like David Cronenberg they asked him to direct can you imagine like a David Cronenberg I can because Cronenberg almost directed Total Recall yeah um, it came very close to directing it and I'm trying to think there's something to my recollection the only scene that is still in Total Recall and I could be wrong but to my recollection, the only scene that's still in Total Recall that was from Cronenberg's original script is the uh, when he's wearing that the woman. Oh, mask. And it opens up. Yeah, yeah, and it starts like two weeks. Yeah, yeah. two weeks. <laughs> Get ready for a surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I could I could totally see. I mean, it would be a very different movie, yeah. but I could totally see a really cool movie. And that's coming off of like Videodrome and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the that fly, is. the fly. Yeah, same year. Then um, you know, Amand Asante they were talking about, or Tom Berenger as uh, RoboCop is too. So like, you, it, you know, bigger guys it wouldn't yeah. have worked. So it's just there's so much, so much things that, that we can keep talking about in here. Dead, dead or alive? <laughs> yeah, 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 you're coming with me. Yeah, I don't know him. Uh, that's my um, shitty um, whatchamacallit oh Mondesantes and this be, I mean when this came out it was huge I mean it was such a culture impact they made two cartoons on it they made a whole comic book series they had a a TV miniseries they had a TV show a live action show in the 90s which was which is reason why, one of the reasons why I just recently had texted you I was like we gotta do Highlander yeah cause that's another but like Robocop I understand the phenomenon like I can see that, like okay, a toy, a cartoon, way to sell merchandise. You know, like like a visual, like RoboCop is visually like stunning yeah. to look at it and very compelling. Um, and I don't say, you know, I'm not, and I don't say that to like degrade Highlander because very few people love Christopher Lambert and Highlander as much as I do. Yeah. The first movie, but I find it fascinating that Highlander ended up spawning off to two television shows, a cartoon show. Countless sequels and stuff. It's just, it's very weird that late, that that 80s time was like. They would give anything a show. To think that, like, before the late 70s, like, other than, like, the. Marvel guy, the superhero. Well, other than the, you know, universal, like, monster movies. Like, movies weren't really franchised and sequeled that much. You know, sure, you had, like, Godfather 2. Yeah. But, like, sequels were not a thing. Yeah. And then things like Halloween and then Star Wars, Friday the 13th. Yeah, you get, like, Bonds or, like, it all you say, comes, horror movies. That but turn of the seven, late 70s and the early 80s becomes, like... They realize like, that they can print money off of just doing these things. Yeah. And there's an audience that will like it. So, yeah. So, you, by 87, it's, like, the whole franchise machine is, in a, you know, working overtime. Yeah. And it's amazing. You, th- you take these movies that we've talked about, probably in other casts, where... 
you know, there's a lot of movies in the 80s that shouldn't have toys and <laughs> cartoons yeah, and, yeah. you know, playing to kids. And this is a, a, a movie exactly where my father, you know my dad, he yeah. is not a guy to shy away from this kind of, but he even thought in the theater this is too much for yeah. my seven or eight year old son at the time so for them to be like yeah we're gonna turn into a fucking cartoon and we're gonna sell <laughs> you know toys and you know you yeah. can have rope you know even so much so you have like um richard nixon later on making an appearance with robocop for like a boys club thing you know you know and yeah, or, yeah. or you have like uh rudolph giuliani before he was mayor when he was still like the district attorney oh, yeah, for manhattan yeah. he's doing like robocop because it's such embedded in the very, system very quick my mom got somehow got tickets to for like some kind of car show yeah at the was then called the Knickerbocker Arena on Albany's now maybe the Pepsi or something like that Pepsi Arena but uh, there was a car show we went it, they had an 89 Batmobile it was fucking sweet. they had the 60s Batmobile yeah and they had some guy walking around in a RoboCop costume. Wow. I was gonna say, did they have his tourist there, the Robo? Because that's on display. The his might have been. But so somewhere still, I have like a promotional eight by ten of RoboCop. Sweet. If I find did that guy, if I, if I, no, it's oh. it's from the movie. Because because the, the the promotional stills they had of Nixon with yeah, him, and yeah. Giuliani, the guy looks terrible. Yeah, it just yeah. looks like it's like it's like and cardboard. I and I don't remember how good the guy's suit was, yeah. but I still have like a promotional. If I can find that eight by ten, but it's amazing. On a trip home, I'll bring that. I'll present that to you. <laughs> when we just, do Robocop it's so too. weird. You think of the level of violence. Oh, and the quote uh, quickly: the cameo, Kirkwood Smith's wife appears as the secretary for Dick Smith. Okay, Dick yeah. Smith, uh, Dick Jones, where he's yeah, like, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, he puts the gum on her. That's his wife in real life. Huh. You know, but it's just so. I, mean, I feel like there's so much more we could have done here, but we just we had limited time. Limited time. technical um, issues. Sun's um, coming up. Our yeah. parents are waking up soon. We got um, uh, Sunday breakfast. Sorry if we. Miss stuff, you know, um, but it is certainly a movie that I hold in a high regard, and uh, it is in, in a lot of ways as as influential as Batman was for me as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Right before Batman, RoboCop was there ushering in like ultra violence and like comic book, <laughs> you know, yeah, the connection yeah. to comic books, you know. And, and it's and it's a movie that I'm glad that we did because it gave me a chance to revisit it. Yeah. You know, like I, because it was never a huge movie for me, it wasn't a movie that I watched over and over again, you know. So, uh, sure, I've seen it a handful of times, you know, throughout my lifetime, but I probably haven't seen it since when we were at least when we were in college. And that was, I remember at the time when Criterion in the early odds, they came out with the special edition. It came and went, the Criterion edition, but that was the first time you were able to see the extended cut. Yeah. Which is only like, I guess, 30 or 40 seconds longer because it's just snippets of shots of brutality or gruesomeness. But I do love the shot when they, like just before they shoot him in the head. Because oh, it's like the fake body. Yeah, and it pans around. <laughs> it's like a and, fake torso. and that's another thing too. The the uh, the the DP, the German DP, Yo, uh, Joss, Joss or whatever I forget his name. Um, they say that that was an idea where they wanted the the camera always moving. Yeah, you know, in the in the movie, like it's always like very. It, it's it's another testament to like we take Anton first, who did like the production design for Batman, and he was a foreigner because he was from England. So it's interesting when you have like a Paul Verhoeven, a foreigner, yeah, coming over to America, looking at America culture, and then trying to make a movie as an outsider. Yeah, yeah. on the American, you well, know, you see a lot of that. It's good. You need that. It's refreshing. You, yeah, because you get like a different point take. Of view. Yeah, it's almost like it's slightly askew the re- our yeah. reality of stuff, and then you know how we're presented in the world. You know, uh, so it's and it's very cultural rever- relevant today. This movie just as oh, much sure. with what's going on with everything. You know, um, whatever. 
side of the political aisle you fall upon, it's very funny that it's it's almost forecasting what's happening into certain levels. So for better or for worse. So it's 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 very it's exciting. And I wonder I don't know where the franchise is, but I can't wait to see the Robo Doc. I'll watch that. I'll buy yeah, that for yeah. a dollar. Dion Bias, something that movie sleepover yeah. says. I'll buy that for a dollar. Ah, so um yeah, well, we hope we did some justice here. I know we we we, we ran right over yeah, this thing, and we kind of steamrolled it out there at the end, trying to make the finish line here. Yeah, um, I'm sure there's tons of stuff we forgot, but we um, can revisit it when we do RoboCop two at some point. Exactly, we'll we'll touch upon the stuff, and we, we can talk here. about poor Fred Decker. Yeah, kinda... yeah, and RoboCop three. <laughs> You know, um, but in the meantime, we, you know, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with an all-new, exciting episode. Summer keeps rolling. Yeah, on. it's rolling, and we're rolling with it. So, uh, you know, check us out on Facebook, check us out on Twitter, check us out on our regular site, and uh, you know, we're always here plugging away. And check our back catalog out, and like us, share yeah, us, check out the back catalog. You know, I've seen some people revisit, like either visiting for the first time or revisiting some of the older episodes. Yeah, it's exciting. Commenting on it, and it's kind of exciting. But yeah. I don't remember that episode. Yeah, but yeah, let us know which, which, if you're listening to an older one. Or whatever, what you think, or you know what you're listening to now, because we'd like to know. You know, inquiring minds want to know what you're doing, so uh, and what you like, so we know what to do. You know, more in the future. You know, yeah. The future isn't promised. <laughs> Future's unknown. Yes. Um, there's a there's a there's a, a music line there, but uh, anyway. Anyway. See you in two weeks. Later.